Flyover Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From his undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. Friend. Hello, Good to see you again. Even this is the first time I've never expected to meet you at this place. That's good. That's my honor. Would you like me to step the class? Would you like me to step the class? If you're an and welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast. This is the second of July year of our Lord 2019. I'm going early because Wednesday I forgot I have like 10,000 appointments with the wife. Back to the uh, surgeon, more physical therapy. And then 4th of July, I'm hoping to get my lure my son over with beer, bourbon, and burgers. I have a little fellowship, it'd be good for his mom. That intro is pretty cool. Um, I'm going to gloss over this because it's more about me talking than actually the way the media covered it. Of course, by now you know that Donald Trump did a tweet at some very important meetings. I will be leaving Japan while there and Chairman Kim of South Korea see this. I would meet him at the border DMZ, just shake hands. Ryan Hill, most of the, uh, in quote, journalists, is he seriously trying to arrange an international summit with Twitter? 11th hour, the latest, North Korea state media calls DMC meetings amazing and Twitter diplomacy and trying to play off that he played in their hands. AP, North Korea state media calls DMC meetings amazing. The latest on President Donald Trump, 10 a.m., North Korea state media is describing leader Kim Jong-un's meeting as amazing. Korean Central News Agency reports that two leaders expressed great satisfaction. At 1.55 a.m., Democratic lawmakers in the United States, including some running for the White House, say there's little in President Trump's diplomatic track to convince them the meeting was worth anything. Trump is cutting under criticism for what Democrats see as his affinity for authoritarian, all negative, negative, negative. Axios, not a conservative site, 10 steps in history. and a made-for-television moment, the two leaders strode toward another for opposite sides of joint security area. Shook hands over the raised patch of concrete at the military DM, demarcation line. Ask, after asking if Kim wanted him to cross, Trump took 10 steps to North Korea with Kim at his side for escorting him back. Yahoo! Pandemonium and Panmujon. In the background of one of the meetings was North Korean and American flags. NBC, Trump meets Kim Jong-un, becomes first sitting president, step in North Korea. Stepping across the line was a great honor, Trump said, later adding that it was something incredible. Then they go on to dog him for doing it. White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham roughed up by North Korea. Media got upset for a little bit over that. Then they dropped it because they realized she works for Trump. How on earth the horrors of North Korea torture camps. A lot of those articles started floating out. Here's just a brief snippet of how the media covered, and then what I'm going to say as a person who's actually lived three years of their life in South Korea. What's happened inside that country has been a slow motion genocide. Elise, what do you think? It makes me want to puke. Just my visceral reaction as an American who cares about democracy and human rights, the fact that Donald Trump is going out of his way to kiss up just to this monster 
instead of actually projecting strength, he what is what have we gotten from the North Koreans for all of this pomp and circumstance and the propaganda coup of having the President of the United States crossing into North Korea? I don't understand what we've gotten except diminished our own standing in the world. Made me wanna puke. That's a Republican on MSDNC. Folks, I've served two times there. I was there for 18 months or 17 and a half months in 1990. Served on the DMZ. You do three rotations at the time. Uh, We no longer patrol it, but you patrol for three weeks. You do QRF for three weeks. You do training for three weeks, and one is movement. It was pretty stark, the difference between North Korea and South Korea. You see Freedom Village in South Korea, gigantic flag. You see Propaganda Village, big, big building, big buildings, 50-style concrete. There's a platoon that goes out there, turns the lights on, turns the lights off. Nobody lives there. You see soldiers out in the field collecting rice because their economy is so trashed. And the only thing you see that's anything that's impressive is a gigantic fucking... Uh, golden statue if you're on ship to shore from one of the defensive perimeters, which I was on Olette, which is right on the um, demarcation line, and it's of the senior Kim. I stayed there 17 months because of the Gulf War, but it got frozen in place. Then I went back in 2000 and saw the stark difference in how far South Korea had come. Everybody had cell phones. We didn't have that back here. And how much their economy has improved and what a great country it is. I was the ugly American in 1990 because I didn't want to be there. And every time you went on a subway, some Korean kid would curse you out in Korean because they wanted to reunite. By 2000, that was a stark difference. But everywhere you went, there was old South Koreans who fought in the war who would pat you on the back, and every once in a while you went into a Mockley house, which we weren't supposed to go to, but I had a couple Katusa friends, which are rich Korean kids that get to serve with the U.S. Army for their two years of conscription. They don't have a choice. Guys in the United States who want to keep their citizenship have to go back to do their duty, and a lot of them end up with Katusas. would bring me in there, we'd have great conversations through the Katusa about... What a great country America was. This is a big deal. And the biggest problem with it is, A, he did it over Twitter, which pisses them off, because now all of a sudden, after Obama doing it for eight years, or how long he did it during his presidency, using social media is not authorized for a Republican. Oh, no, no, no. It's cool when our guy does it, but it's not when your guy does it. Secondly, he... Made history. They don't want him to make history. They want him to fail. They want America to fail. They're going to say on TV they don't, but that's what they want. They want him to fail in all facets. And making history is a bad deal, so they're going to curse it down. And then lastly, they're going to say, oh, he has such an affinity for fucking dictators. Look him and Kim, blah, 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 blah. There are all sorts of pictures of Obama with Venezuelan dictators with Cuban dictators, smiling and hamming it up. During that election, if I remember correctly, Bush Co. was not going to talk to Ahmadinejad. Man, I can't even say his name right. From Iran. 
And all we heard is, why would you not talk to a foreign leader? Why would you not at least let diplomacy work and have conversations with your enemies and be civil? That's what a civil society does. So he does it. He's sucking dick on a foreign leader. But when Obamaco did it, it was because he's an enlightened form of human being that's above all of us. He's a god. You guys are fucking hypocrites. But as a guy who served, I don't give a fuck if he did suck his dick. If there's a way to actually heal the Korean Peninsula and get this just horrible state of affairs. I mean, for you knuckles that sit around in your little liberal bubbles and jerk off to Antifa videos, which is our next segment brought to you by Matt in Oregon, who sent it to me way before it blew up. Thanks, Matt. Folks. Every ridgeline is bunkers and rock drops. Rock drops are big structures that you blow up to block roads. Because mechanized forces during the spring and summer can't roll through rice paddies where most of the northern part of South Korea is just one big fucking rice paddy. It smells like deep fried ass with a side of yak sauce. It's disgusting. On those ridgelines are bunkers with range cards that were made circa 1960, and you can occupy them. During my time on the DMZ, that same village you saw Kim and Trump shake hands and walk into North Korea, we encircled in our bunkers when they did a exchange. It was an aircraft with dead bodies in it from the 50s. And we guarded it in case some shit came up. We did numerous drills during the crew off stage where you just roll into those bunkers. One of them was a horrible incident when before we did the tape and tie up stuff, had a pair of PBS 7s. I lifted the 50 off because you had a certain amount of time to get there. So it was a 50 on a tripod, very, very fucking heavy. And my guys were just too slow and I freaked because I didn't want to be fucked up because a little E5 brand new squad leader. This was the first time I was really leading people. I yanked the whole fucking thing off the back of a deuce and a half. I still don't know how to do it. Ran it down to the fucking bunker and slammed it down. Well, somehow in between it, my nod string broke. Because we didn't tie stuff. I then spent the rest of that QRF deployment low crawling from the truck till I found my nods at the bottom of a mud puddle. Yeah, that's a career ender right there. I, I would have lost, like, everything. But I found them, thank God. But long story short... That's a serious thing. On the other side, they have the same thing. It's still 1952, 53. Armistice. We're still at a state of war. There's still firefights. We're just not taking part in it. There's still defectors. There's still people trying to sneak through there. On my patrols, I walked across the the MDL, and I fucking literally... Stepped into North Korea. Had pictures and everything until I fell in a goddamn creek. It was a disposable camera, so it disposed my film. But it's serious shit. And not that I have affinity for horrible communist countries. Looking across into North Korea, as a human being, I felt really bad for those people. I was in my 20s. The sanctions, because of their horrible government, have really ruined their lives, and they're starving people. There's all sorts of videos you can YouTube, unless they blocked it now, because they don't want people to know that North Korea 
people, if we can work something out, would be a really good thing for them, of kids underneath people eating, grabbing the little pieces of rice that fell on the ground, because that's all they're going to eat today, and buildings that are half-made, guards out in the street directing traffic, and there's no fucking traffic, because nobody can afford a car. And although I know all the socioeconomic problems that would happen if you reunited the North and South, it would deplete and almost bankrupt South Koreans. But that's what the UN's for. It would be great to see it happen. Do I think it's going to happen? No. But for 2.3 seconds, we could have stopped and put down our fucking claw hammers against the president and gone... This is a big fucking deal, just like Biden. But we couldn't do that. We just can't. Because we're assholes. Just, the media is just a bunch of fucking assholes. So, going to move into uh, our violent left. And, wow. As stated, Matt in Oregon sent me a live feed. And that shit went all sorts of sideways. <laughs> The biggest terror threat in this country is white men, most of them radicalized right up to the right. All punches are not equal morally. steaming pile of shit per usual within that you're going to hear an elderly man beaten with a crowbar for trying to help a gay man and Andy NGO who was beaten 
Within it, you have them running around with milkshakes because they picked that up. The media said it was the coolest thing ever. Happened overseas. Now we're doing it. But the problem is within that milkshake is quick-drying cement. We're going to see how the media didn't really fucking care. How a lot of media mocked it because it was a right-wing reporter, they say, even though he's an Asian gay guy. Not that that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that's who he is. You're going to see how Twitter took away the rights of people reporting about the beatings, but it allowed horrible things to be said. And our This Is America today will land all of this at the feet of Chuck Todd and Chris Cuomo. That's pretty much a nice little cliff note of what we're about to do. Ellie man beat with a crowbar. Another has his head split open by Antifa while trying to help a gay man in a sundress. During the violent rioting by Antifa protesters in Portland, Oregon this weekend, two men attending a Hymn 2 gathering were viciously beaten by the far-left activists. One of the victims, identified by a commenter, commentator, excuse me, and journalist Michelle Malkin as John Blum, suffered a bloodied face after he was beaten with a crowbar. The other man, identified as Adam Kelly, had his head split open by criminal Antifa members, suffering a concussion. He needed 25 stitches. Blum and Kelly were in Pioneer Courthouse Square to attend a demonstration for the Him Too movement, which purports to raise awareness for male sexual assault victims and men falsely accused of sex crime. The man apparently stepped into Antifa chaos by trying to help a gay man in a sundress being chased down the street. While John was being pummeled by the mob in the center, Adam was struck in the head with nunchucks, metal water bottles, some sort of metal rod and fist. John was sprayed with mace and blinded. He was led away as blood dripped down his face, then dragged to the sidewalk. Another observer noticed that one of Adam's attackers appeared to be wielding something like a sock and a padlock. Knowing that the Antifa criminals were masked, as per usual, Blum told Malkin he would reveal his identity and show his face. I'm not afraid, he said. Kelly, too, agreed to come forward. Both John and Adam were beaten by Antifa after trying to help a gay man in a sundress being chased down the street. While the cowards are masked, John and Adam face the crowd openly agreed to be named. You should see the picture of this guy's face. It's just full of blood. According to human rights, human events writer Ian Miles Chong, Rose City Antifa, a group which helped organize a violent showing on Saturday, celebrated their violence and asked for bail money for the arrested suspects. A paltry amount. As the Daily Wire reported on Sunday, at least three Antifa members, two females and one male, who is a girl, really, were arrested. And we'll get to that in a second. Rose City Antifa, the group of anarchist militants responsible for organizing Saturday's protests in Portland, where any NGO was assaulted as posted celebrating this attack and another begging for cash. Daryl Lamont Jenkins. Remember, everyone, as the right goes on their latest crybaby wah, I'm a victim campaign about Antifa, they only do it because they think they can gaslight you into thinking you being anti-fascist is wrong. Rose City Antifa's account, obviously you need to take some of the Oregonian commentary with a grain of salt, but this has a nice selection of picks and a basic arc of the event. The sad thing is too many journalists are taking the PBB at their word when they have an established track record of dishonestly to beer, to smear anti-fascists against PR and material organizing of the local far right. Furthermore, Andy NGO is not a journalist. He is a right-wing agitator and active participant in local fascist harassment. Despite these feeble attempts to create 
false narratives by PPB and the local alt-right, those of us there on the ground know that J29 was a success for the people of Portland and showed that we will always stand up to fascists. Rose City Antifa again. Hi. Hey, hello. We're boosting the fundraiser today to help the bail money. Ian Miles Chong. Rose City Antifa, the group of anarchists and militants responsible for organizing Saturday's protest in Portland where Andy Ngo was assaulted, is supposed to celebrating attack, blah, 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 blah. As noted by Chong, journalist Andy Ngo was also visually, viciously assaulted and robbed while covering the demonstration. In a video posted online, Ngo was kicked, punched, had milkshakes thrown on him by left-wing thugs. According to Portland police, some of the milkshakes hurled by Antifa reporters contain quick-dry cement. The Quillette editor suffered a brain hemorrhage, among other injuries. Attorney Harmit K. Dillon, who is representing NGO, all but promised a lawsuit against Antifa. Good night, everyone, except Antifa criminals, who I plan to sue in oblivion and then sow salt into their yoga studios and avocado toast stands until nothing grows there, not even the glimmer of a violent criminal conspiracy. Here is Andy talking post. Attacked by Antifa, bleeding, they stole my camera equipment, no police until after, waiting for ambulance. If you have evidence, please help. Because the police doing nothing. Um, I just got beat up by the crowd, no police at all. Um, in the middle of the street, and they stole my GoPro, and they punched me several times in my face, and my head, I'm bleeding. Um... Where the hell were all of you? Can, can you talk to me? Yeah, where the hell were you? you know your name? My name's Andy Ngo. You know where you're at? I had been assaulted twice earlier today and reported it to your colleagues. And nothing was done. Andy, I'd, I'd like to And help I was you in the middle of the street in the front documenting this. I'd like to help you. Can, can you tell me can you tell They me stole you're my at? evidence. They told, stole my GoPro. Andy, can, can I take care of your medical needs right now? Is that okay? We'll, we'll worry about that in a little bit. Okay, can you tell me where you're at? Can you tell me who the president is? I know they're dumb questions. Trump. Okay. So tell me what happened. Looks like you got hit in the forehead a little bit. In the eye. They just started attacking me. Okay, what what did they use? Their weapons in their hands. Okay. Their shields. Did, did their you, signs. Did you black out? No. Okay. Uh, do you have any blurred vision? I don't think so. Okay, can I see your I eyes? Got, I got this. They throwing milkshakes on me too. Okay, so open your eyes for me. Look, look at me right in the eyes. Okay. Um, any neck or back pain? Uh, not in this position. Okay. So other than other than the obvious ones you have on your face, anything else on, on your body hurts? I, I get that. I don't. I just want somebody. Uh, to I don't know. It's stinging you know, okay. because I have cuts can, on my face. Can you lean forward for me? I'm gonna feel your neck and back. Tell me if any of this hurts. No. They hit me on the back of my head. So Mind if I take a Go ahead. His face is all sorts of fucked. Portland police. Police have received information that some of the milkshakes thrown on quick dry cut cement were encouraging anyone hit with the substance today to report it to the police. We will do nothing. Mayor Ted Wheeler. Fucking mayor. 
Portland has always been a beacon of free speech. We're proud of that history. But in the last couple of years, some have increasingly used their opportunity to exercise the First Amendment right as an opportunity to incite violence. Over the weekend, some chose to engage in violence in Portland, which is unacceptable and will not be tolerated. We stand against all forms of violence, regardless of someone's political leanings. Portland police officers have the unenviable task of keeping the peace. It's a difficult job and hard decisions are made in real time. While we continue to learn more about what transpired over the weekend, we will keep you informed. We will do everything we can to make sure that those who have committed violence are held accountable. That is a gigantic fucking lie. But we'll get to that in a second. Jesse Deemer a resident of Portland, resign. You stand for nothing and have sold your soul to appease one of the worst groups of people on the planet. Have fun supporting the brown shirts. Anifa brutally assaults journalists during Portland protest. Uh, this one's a little more of a breakdown. Scene of the attack on reporter Andy at NGO was captured a video live stream broadcast demonstrations in Portland. The group turned into a mob which turned on the journalists. Having learned his identity, Anifa attacked Andy NGO. Members of the Rose City Anifa, numbering in the hundreds, organized as a counter-protester for a few dozen right-wing protesters from the Proud Boys and other right, rightist organizations who announced their decision to demonstrate in three sites across the city. Police responded to the demonstration by cordoning off various intersections and preventing the group from clashing. Caught in the crossfire was NGO, an editor for Quillette, and a contributor to Wall Street Journal. He covered the unfolding protest by following a group of anarchist activists, some of whom he identified as militant Antifa. The group quickly turned into a mob which targeted the journalist. Oregon reporter Dave Killian and Jim Ryan captured much of the attack, which shows NGO being violently battered by a group of black-clad men and women who robbed him of his camera equipment before proceeding to punch, kick, and throw various objects, including milkshakes, raw eggs, and other makeshift weapons aimed at his head. Jim Ryan, tweet, the left-wing demonstrator easily numbered in the hundreds. Jim Ryan again, first skirmish I've seen, didn't see how this started, but NGO got roughed up. In a video posted on Periscope following the attack, a bedraggled NGO, blah, 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 we just talked about it. Let's pause for a second, because here's the deal. Those pictures are out there for the police. None of them were attacked. Later, we'll see exactly who did it. They were not attacked. Or arrested, excuse me. They weren't arrested. Police did nothing. They just let it happen. Because they're lefties too. They're being pushed by the mayor and the chief of police to the right people are evil, just let it go. Because we don't want to deal with these crazy fucks. Because they've taken over the city. How many segments have we done from Andy and Geo of city council things where the, the black chief of police is called a white supremacist? These people are beyond crazy. This is the next level crazy. But within this article, here's some of the stuff that has to go with. Even John McCain is my dad, Jacobs. You were you went there to antagonize them. You knew they were targeting you. This is exactly what you wanted. Brutalism apologists. Good get good, scrub. Article continues. Well, corporations like Burger King encourage left wing activists to throw milkshake at political figures. Do you remember that? We did it on the show. They deleted it. Some members of the press celebrated the exercise as a nonviolent act that leads to humiliation. The attack on NGO was not a fluke, it was inevitability. Vox Media Jenny G. Zong called the hurling of foods the ultimate act of dissent, 
and ranked a list of foods she considered effective in silencing political opponents. They said it would stop with milkshakes and mocked the idea that thrown foods could be anything but violent. But as Human Events Editor Rashim Kassam predicted, these attacks always escalate to deadlier form of physical violence. NGO's attack was carried out by the same group of people who call themselves social justice warriors and staunch opponents of racism, fascism, and homophobia, but they beat two guys up trying to save a fucking gay dude in a dress. I'm assuming on the intersexually scorecard, he's got two. Tranny, gay. From the Daily Wire, uh, let's see, one of my friends told him he wanted to get attacked and gone to the protest to antagonize them. Then he cover Ian Michael Chung. Let's see if he got anything new on this article. Earlier, Ryan posted footage of Antifa members dancing in the back of a truck and pouring milkshakes for participants to throw that are actually quick crete cement. Let's listen. Once again, photographic evidence of all the people that did it. But what was the outcome? Gage Halposki, 23, on charges of second-degree assault, assault on a public safety officer. He had a policeman. James K. Stocks, 21, on the charge of harassment. Maria C. DeHart, 23, on the charge of second-degree disorderly conduct and harassment. Steve Hostetter, oh, we're not going to go there yet. We're going to go to the actual picture. There is a picture of the exact person it's a dude girl. Looks like a dude, but it's a girl. And let me make the picture bigger because I can't read it. I fucked up when I did this. Sorry about that. Let's get this a little bigger. Okay. Catherine Batia stretches her hands out in front of her on the tabletop, rubbing her palms together absentmindedly as she does whenever she's uncomfortable. This time she's talking about her family and, well, last time she was too. She says she has a lesbian cousin. Her family came to accept her. Cousin blah, blah, blah. That's the face of the picture taken of the person who milkshaked him. It's her who thinks she's a him. Didn't, didn't get arrested. They're, they're not going to arrest anybody. They, they never do. That's how bad Antifa's gotten. The city is so fucking scared, they don't do anything about it. And if you interview people like Matt and Oregon, people don't even go there anymore. It's so out of control. The downtown of Portland is a fucking, it's like mad fucking max up in that bitch. Anytime anybody with a poison view comes. Just opposing. We're not talking tiki torching, marching motherfuckers. We're talking just an opposing view. No. We will not tolerate it. We own this city. We own the government. In the South, it this wouldn't happen. I hate to say it. First time this happened, 
bunch of people like me with ARs be coming out of the woodwork. We get rid of you. I'm not saying shoot you, but we move you the fuck out. You would not be occupying downtown Clarksville. It would not happen. You could occupy these nuts. You're getting the fuck out. But people up there, they just bend to this stuff because they're so progressive in their mind. Yeah, they are bad people. Fuck them up. Steve Hostetter, a fucking journalist. I don't condone violence and I don't like to see anyone hurt, but Andy NGO is as much a journalist as I am a second baseman. AG conservative, awful. Praying for a quick recovery. I hope someone kept track of all the blue checks who mocked Andy NGO and tried to justify the attack. They should be called out for it. And it goes a little something like this. Cry some more about it, bitch. L-M-A-O. Nate Bathia. Aw, face. Anna carelessly opened a McDonald's milk packet and spilled some on my mil-spec assault pack. I deserve 50K for this. Nate Bathia again. Rest in peace, Annie NGO, whose brain exploded into diarrhea fragments from getting hit with a single piece of silly string. Esteemed brain experts reported we've never seen so much thin broth inside someone's skull before. The Wall Street Journal commented, no, who will we hire to be racist now? Ian Boudreau, if Annie NGO has a brain hemorrhage, how would you be able to tell? Another one, privileged white people mocking the assault of a gay Asian man. Just make that think for a second. This is a gay Asian man. Entitled white hipsters. Talking shit about him. But that's okay. No violation. Twitter. Nothing. Uh, These are all still up. Justin, are you blind? He got punched in the head multiple times and had bricks thrown at him. Another person. Laugh my ass off. Where are the bricks, my dude? Hate when my scheme to put a caustic, venal-powered Venezuelan communism in milkshakes gets revealed by the plunky gumshoes of Always Crying Brigade. Two Bird 2019. They gave him a brain hemorrhage, Nate. This is what happens when you let your brain get too smooth. Other people. Picture Brazzers, his face with white shit all over it to simulate an ejaculation. Oh, that's just funny. Guys in the hospital. That's good shit. But Thea, again, I work in one of the fiction no-go zones that Andy Ngo invented for this vile Wall Street Journal editorial, and quite frankly, fuck him forever. He put an entire community at risk because he's a racist grifter who lies and distorts and at infantum. But then you have this. Wow. Twitter. Why is Lucette Veritas account suspended. All she did was highlight Antifa violence, and I noticed he Shaws, who tweeted, now let's kill some Jews, still has his account up. That's Chris Pandolfo. Article goes, almost like Twitter's protecting Antifa, wonder what that is. Meanwhile, this asshole's account is just fine. The whole world hates you, loathes you to be precise, can't wait to get rid of you. Well, isn't this concerning? If they remove the evidence, I guess they think it never happened. I bet the footage was included in numerous videos and broadcasts elsewhere, though. Apparently, Twitter hasn't heard of Streisand effect, Eddie L. She was ground zero. They took it offline. Other pictures are up there. I've gotten them. Portland police, nothing. 
Nothing. We're not doing anything. Brian Seltzer begins our media coverage, as you will see, is very little. Disturbing, attacking a messenger shows weakness, not strength. Hopefully the authorities will get to the bottom of this. People go, what the fuck is a messenger? Then he gave some lip service to it on his show. One more important story uh, that you need to know about before we take a break. Uh, This is a protest that turned violent against a member of the media in Portland, Oregon this weekend. Uh, Conservative journalist Andy Ngo was out there covering rival protests on Saturday. Antifa on one side, right-wing figures on the other side. But as the demonstrations clashed, uh, protesters, uh, it appears to be Antifa protesters, uh, then attacked Ngo. Uh, He's been out there in the past. He's been covering protests in Portland for quite some time. Uh, His critics say he's there to to cause trouble. But that's unacceptable. Uh, The idea that he would be attacked, that he would be uh, bloodied in that way, uh, unacceptable period. Uh, And it's important uh, that everyone make that clear, Uh, even left-wing critics who don't like him and and things like that. There's much still to be, much more we don't know yet about all the circumstances, uh, but disturbing to see that in Portland. Yeah, that's that's just fucking fantastic. That's just fantastic. We don't know a whole lot, but that's pretty bad. Do, do Do they ever say that when it's the other way around? We don't know a lot. I mean, granted, I'll give him credit. He at least showed it. But what the fuck? We don't know a lot. Conservative reporter. Do we say liberal reporter for CNN? WAPO, New York Times. Do we ever say that? We're going to go to a music break right now. They barely covered this on CNN other than Seltzer. And I saw a tweet by Tapper and he got attacked for it. But they had time to run this to prep for 2020 that the rise of the KKK. We don't have any specials the rise of Antifa. We don't hear about the KKK beating the fuck out of reporters. But we always hear about Antifa destroying Portland. But there's no specials for that. But they had a special for this. And then we'll come back in to some more non-coverage by the media. The country is changing. Get the f*** out of here! The fear growing. And it's spreading across the world. Why would you treat us like that? A fire fed by politics. Very fine people on both sides. We've witnessed extreme racism before in periods of upheaval and rapid social change. And now, once again, we are living in such a time. Hail Trump! Hail our people! Hail victory! And we need to make America great again. Trump definitely energized the alt-right. Because we have this connection with him, we can inflect his policies. We are determined to take our country back. We're going to fulfill the promises of Donald Trump. Donald Trump is not a white supremacist. But there is no doubt that he is a hero to many in the white supremacy movement. Even America's president jumped on the bandwagon. Sweden! Who would believe this? Sweden! 
when they hear Donald Trump using language that they know comes from their ideology. They're having problems like they never thought possible. They feel energized and they feel they've succeeded. I hurt myself today to see if I still feel I focus on the pain the only thing that's real the needle tears a hole the old familiar sting try to kill it all away but I remember everything what have I become my sweetest friend everyone I know goes away in the And you could have it all My empire of dirt I will let you down I will make you hurt You stay the hell away from me, you hear? I wear this crown of thorns upon my liar's chair full of broken thoughts I cannot repair beneath the stains of time the feelings disappear You are someone else I am still right here What have I become My sweetest friend Everyone I know away in the year and you could have it all my empire of dirt I will let you down I will make you hurt if I could start again at the media bubble one podcast at a time here's tony reed come fly with me let's fly let's fly away 
If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come on and fly with me. Let's fly, let's fly away. In Portland, Oregon, violence in the streets as fights broke out among right-wing and left-wing protesters staging competing demonstrations. Several injuries were reported. Police used social media to declare the situation a civil disturbance. Three people were arrested on assault and harassment charges. And that's it. That That's your whole media coverage. That was ABC. They're the only ones that even talked about it. They didn't talk about Andy. They just talked about the violence from, at least they said left-wing. I'll... I'll take that. Brandon Darby, respectfully, why did you edit out the part where Antifa punched and kicked the journalists? Because they wouldn't air it. Somebody says CNN created Antifa when it first began attacking kids on college campuses. CNN promoted them and praised them in many instances. Oregonian. Portland mayor police come under fire after right-wing writer attacked at protest. Let's just, I don't have to read the article. Just let that stand. The mayor and police come under fire. Not Antifa beat the fuck out of people and are destroying our city. We're not going to say that because we like Antifa. We're a bunch of goddamn liberal reporters and, you know, the Oregonian. And it's all good that they have just made our city a hot steaming pile of fucking shit. Yeah, it's all good. Don't mean nothing. CBS, I found an article online, CBS clashes between right-wing demonstration and Antifa turn into civil disturbances in Portland. Uh, Their article clashed between rallies by several right-wing and anti-fascist group in downtown Portland led to at least three people being arrested. That's it. That's it. Assistant Chief Davis said, Demonstration events are very fluid in nature, and the management of these events is complex. There are hundreds of peaceful free speech events a city in a given year and do not result in violence, but unfortunately this one went bad. Talia Lavin. Oh, we know her. She's the one that said the guy who was a hero, disabled vet, was a Nazi. N-E-N-G-O, peaceful protest showing his bag covered in cement. Or speckled in cement, so being, you know, I'm being honest. Talia Levin, when an Antifa bird poos on your backpack. We got jokes. Slate writer, Ayaman is male. I'd argue that the fear-mongering he's done against Muslims, plus the work he's done to discredit hate crimes, helped create an atmosphere of violence that vulnerable people all have to live through just for being who they are. This is bad, but he's guilty of worse. Rich Gannell, Slate reporter, justifies attack on gay Asian because he's conservative. He has a brain bleed. Where are the adults at Slate? All violence must be condemned. Dan Bondingo attacked... Jake Tapper, Antifa regularly attacks journalists. It's reprehensible. Charlie Wardsell, that's the one tweet I found from Tapper. Thread from a great journalist who routinely embeds with hate groups. This doesn't discount what the situation is fucked and that violence should be unacceptable, but there are also serious risks involved with putting yourself in volatile situations. Any journalist should, show that, should know that. Vegas Tenhold, Dear Jake, a thread. 
First of all, an egg lobbed under a crowd where a journalist happens to be isn't attacking a journalist. You're being silly. Second, stop your poll clutching so someone swats away a camera or rips out a microphone. It happens. That's Stockholm Syndrome in most cases, but it's not. The, the, the media love these guys. It's what they want to do to everybody who discredits what they say. Ricky Gervais, no liberal or no conservative. It's interesting that the people who believe that throwing a milkshake in someone's face shouldn't be considered assault are often the same people who believe that spying things should be. Or saying things should be. I fucked that all up. Let's do it again. It's interesting that the people who believe that throwing a milkshake in someone's face shouldn't be considered assault are often the same people who believe that saying things should be. He's dead on. If I say there's not 95 pronouns, I should be killed. Yeah. And oh, by the way, the FBI is probing Antifa plot to buy guns from the Mexican cartel. These aren't your friends. They're not progressives. They're anarchists. They don't want any country. No government anarchy. Claire Lehman. What the fuck kind of fact check is this? Andy NGO is indeed an editor with us. He's a journalist. And no, Quillette is not conservative. We're all political moderates of a liberal centrist persuasion. Snopes. Why the fuck they would fact check this? Just, it just proves once again they're not a reliable site. Andy Angio described himself as an editor at the conservative website Quillette and says he's is hated by Antifa, said he was attacked by Antifa fascist protesters and had been taken to the hospital to treat injuries to his face and head. He said, even though it is a thing, David Rothschild, bad for people to attack journalists regardless of political agenda. Two, Quillette is basically the literary wing of TPUSA. Claire Lehman, once again, don't try to characterize us with your crude partisan talking points. The founder, Colette, me, is Australian, and our senior editors are British and Canadian, respectfully. Your two-dimensional political prism doesn't work on us. And she's right. If you read anything over there, they got a little bit of everything. All right? They're just not conservative. But once again, because he points out the fake fucking trans deaths and all this other shit, well, you know, hey, we can't have that. Truth can't be out there. New York Antifa, this is uh, their reply to all this shit. Every single anti-fascist that goes on the street to defend their town and communities risks their life from far-right or police violence. We will defend ourselves from all repressive forces as well as anyone who gives alibis for his violent repression. And then he tries to bring a bunch of cases that people got beat up or something. Unfortunately, every one of those cases, they beat somebody up, then they got beat up. But that doesn't work. If you drop a first blood, Rambo rules say, you get to fight back. The only person to actually talk to Andy NGO was Tucker Carlson. It went a little something like this. Andy No is an independent journalist in the Pacific Northwest. He's been on the show a number of times. He covers Antifa quite a bit. He was at an Antifa rally over the weekend, minding his own business, covering the news. He's a journalist. When he was beaten almost to death by Antifa, wound up in the hospital. He just got out and joins us now on this program. We're happy to see him. Andy, I'm glad you're capable of doing this interview. Tell us what happened. On Saturday, documenting this protest that was organized by Antifa and its allies, we were 
a literal stone's throw away from Portland's most important institutions of the rule of law, the courthouses, um, the sheriff's office, the central police precinct, while hearing people chant, no hate, no fear, I'm suddenly bashed on the back of my head from behind. And from there, I'm a very passive person. I've never been in a fight. It took me a few seconds to realize that I was actually even hitting my head. When I realized what was happening, it was too late. Um, A mob of people, all dressed in black and wearing masks, started beating me with their fists and some of them use objects to hit me. I don't know how many people were involved. It seemed like 5, 10, 15, or 20. It could have been that many. Um, They beat me so much that I lost control of my GoPro camera that I was holding, which was then stolen from me. And when I thought it was over, I was wrong. Um, I put my arms up to try to shield my face as well as to signal to them that I was surrendering and that I uh, wasn't there to fight but that really signaled to them to be more aggressive so then they started dumping what I believe were milkshakes and eggs throwing it at my face which blinded me so I couldn't see and I was kicked some more, punched some more and all this time I kept thinking where are the police? I could still see the Monoma County Justice Center in front of me, but no police ever arrived. I eventually stumbled away, bleeding, um, across the park, and I lost my balance, so I sat down on the ground in front of the courthouse. And from there, a medic SWAT team informed me that in order to get an ambulance to be taken to a hospital, I would have to walk to the police precinct, in other words, walk back in the direction of the demonstrators who just attacked me. Later that night, after arriving in the emergency room, I had a CT scan, which confirmed that there that I was diagnosed with um, a brain hemorrhage. Understand, all of this has been under the media's radar and allowed to happen and actually supported by the media. What makes it worse, most of this has been condoned, promoted, I mean, requested by Democratic politicians. Oh, you say I'm full of shit? Do we remember getting their face? Don't let them have a place in civil society? Well, while all this is going on, the Washington Post decided to give... An op-ed time, after, you know, Eric Trump got spit on, by the owner of the Red Hand, who ran out Sarah Huckabee Sanders. And this is their article. Restaurants are now a soundstage for our national spectacle. Stephanie Wilkinson's her name. In recent weeks, we witnessed two high-profile collisions between food service industry and an unwelcome potential patron. In the first, Cracker Barrel, the Tennessee-based chain best known for its simpler time decor and crowd-pleasing portions, came out with a forceful statement barring Grayson Fritz, the sheriff, the detective 
Coombe Baptist preacher advocates the arrest and execution of LGBT people from holding an event at one of its restaurants in Cleveland, Tennessee. In the second instance, a server in Avery, an upscale Chicago cocktail bar, was briefly detained by Secret Service after allegedly spitting on the face of Eric Trump while the president's son was visiting the city for business. Happily, there were more widespread support for Cracker Barrel than for spitting server. A hate monger with murderous intent doesn't deserve anyone's hospitality, but no one in the industry condones a physical assault of a patron. Yet, in whatever way we regard these events, the first, the fact remain that restaurants are now part of the soundstage of our ongoing national spectacle. Whether the bar or restaurant serves merely as a backdrop, as in the cases last year of Nielsen, Miller, Mitch McConnell, or takes an active role in the drama, as we, as was the case with Cracker Barrel, Avery or, or my own restaurant last June, the business involved inevitably comes under attack. A portion of the public will scold owners and managers about staying in their lane and express chagrin at the loss of perceived political free zones. The comments tend to fall into one of two camps. Either that's it's illegal to discriminate against a person for his or her political stance, or that it violates some imaginary unwritten universal service for all hospitality industry code. Neither is quite right. Eateries have always reserved the right to refuse service, but in the main, the real hospitality code comes down to a simple and paradoxical statement. All are welcome. Terms and conditions apply. Thankfully, as a culture and by law, the United States continue to move toward increasingly inclusivity in communal spaces. No one can deny you service because of your race, religion, or national origin, and in some places, sexual orientation, physical ability, and age are also protected classes, while in the district... While in the district, Seattle, and a few other locales, it is illegal to refuse service based on a guest's political affiliation or views. At the same time, if you're an unsavory individual of whatever persuasion or affiliation, we have no legal or moral obligation to do business with you, and that too is right. Because, and this is important and easily overlooked, at bottom, this isn't about politics. It's about values and accountability to values and business. On a variety of levels, pressure is increasing on companies to articulate and stand by a code. It's a liberal code, but yeah, okay. Customers are demonstrating that they want to patronize companies that share their values. Our workforce also increasingly demands that employers establish a set of ethical standards. The once ubiquitous idea that companies exist purely and solely to provide profit for shareholders is withering away like corn husk in the summer sun. Blah, blah, blah. In fact, nothing makes me happier than watching guests at adjacent tables strike up a conversation and share an evening together. I know of several long-term friendships. Blah, blah. The high-profile clashes rarely involve one citizen fussing at another over the entrees. It's more often a frustrated person, some of whom are restaurant employees, lashing out at the representative of an administration that has made its name trashing norms and breaking backs. Not surprising if you think about it. You can't call people your enemies by day and expect hospitality from them by night. So when the day comes that the world feels returned to its normal axis, I expect we'll see fewer highly charged encounters making headlines. In the meantime, the new rules apply. If you're directly complicit in spreading hate or perpetuating suffering, maybe you should consider dining at home. For the rest, your table is waiting. So basically, we can make the case, we can do whatever we want if you're a conservative. If you don't believe like us, Go fuck yourself. But for everybody else, come on down. You're justifying with hyperbole. None of this is true. Nobody's lost rights under Trump. Transgenders can't be in the military, but they're still in because everybody's hedgehogging on it. But it's all a lie. 
Everybody's still getting their 85th abortion. Because they can go to other states. This is our media. Oh, that's just what? No! New York Times post op-eds in favoring of doxing custom and border protection agents. The identities of the individual customer and border protection agents who are physically separating children from their families and staffing the detention centers are not undiscoverable. Immigration lawyers have agent names. Journalists reporting at the border have names, photos, and even videos. These agents' actions should be publicized, particularly in the home communities. Cronin Furman had a nerve to say his personal targeting was not doxing, a despicable act that Times selectively finds concerning when it's allegedly using against leftists. There was also an inevitable Nazi reference. This is not an argument for doxing. It's about exposure of their participation and atrocities to audiences' opinion they care about. The knowledge, for instance, that when you go to church on Sunday, your entire congregation will have seen you on TV ripping a child out of her father's arms is a serious social cost to bear. The desire to avoid this kind of social shame may be enough to persuade some agents to quit and may hinder their recruitment or replacements. For those who won't or can't quit, it may induce them to treat the vulnerable individuals under the control more humanely. In Denmark, during World War II, for instance, strong social pressure, including from churches, contributed to the refusal of the country to comply with Nazi orders to deport Jewish citizens. The American Bar Association has signaled that anyone who defends the Border Patrol's mistreatment of children will not be considered a member in good standing, and they did it. They did it. They promote this stuff. The median Democrats believe you do not have a place in civil society unless you bow to the religion of progressivism. And they have their arm of militia, the Antifa, to execute that. They have Twitter supporting taking down the videos. I'm not wearing a tinfoil hat. This is just the facts. This week, Canada finally did some cartoonist Michael Deatter was fired. He put up a picture. Can I play through Donald Trump standing over the dead families? That's because it got pushback. Folks, the left doesn't want normal society. City and Ilion Omar's congressional district voted 5-0 to zero to eliminate the Pledge of Allegiance, which might insult people and hurt their feelings. They don't want America. They don't want America. It's St. Louis Park. That's not what they want. And as they push all this shit, alleged illegal alien serial killer now accused of killing 18 in Dallas. Fuck those people. Fuck them. They're red staters. If a bunch of illegal aliens start chopping motherfuckers up inside New York and California, they'll start caring. But if it's not there, they're already pre-programmed by the media and the Democrats. Fuck those people who didn't vote like you. Fuck those people who didn't think like you. Fuck those people who believe in a God and a normal family. Fuck those people. They're not Americans. You're the American. As we'll see as we go into our hate tweets, a lot of people on the left are starting to wake the fuck up and realize your candidates are so far left because your base is so minuscule, but you're so scared of them. There isn't 
a push for any of this shit from normal Americans. It's just your crazy base. Two are hate tweets. Hate tweet of the day! This is not a standard immigration debate. What? what we have now is a debate over whether or not the United States is operating concentration camps at our border. What? We have an almost Geneva Convention level threat to people's lives. What, six children have died at the border? We're throwing kids in cages. We're putting up military tents. This is not normal People immigration People died when policy. Obama was president in the same, place, the same situation. But he didn't have this policy. This policy of taking well, mothers from their okay. kids, this idea that yes, we're going to set course. up camps Again, at the border, we all agree, this is Trump. We, all agree we need to debate that on the level that it is. I, I, as serious I, as it is. I agree, Joy, but there are a thousand, to coin a phrase, a thousand small sanities between accepting the bigotry and brutality of Trump and simply seeming to suggest that we can... that. We can have open borders, which is a total, uh, another hostage we're giving to Democrat Trump. I don't think any Democrat said that. Uh, no, but it's well, always about this one thing. Right. Should we call it concentration camps right. or should we call it something less? And really, most of the debate should be over here in another bigger area. But, and, can, and can we also point out, right. in, a, in a culture where everybody gets offended about everything, Yes. Jew, half Jew, half Jew, we got two Jews. <laughs> Anybody here offended by using concentration camp? A little bit. A little bit? A little okay. Bit, yeah. A little enough to completely walk away and throw everything out the window? No, no, of no, no, no analogy but, is ever perfect. No analogy no. runs right. on all fours. So but stop if what's happening no, right, in but, that border, we know what it is. Right. We see what it is. It's horrific. It is it is it makes us look like the kind of country we used to send monitors Monitor. to. Right. And I don't know how anybody can twist this this into well, they shouldn't be bringing their kids over anyway. If you're saying that to yourself, what a terrible sentiment to have. Get on your knees tonight and ask for guidance on how to feel about this issue and ask God to soften your heart or to at least speak to you about who you've become as a human being. And look, they don't even have You cannot look at that picture and not... And, not, and, and stop saying that people are coming over who are seeking asylum, that, that it's illegal. No, that's what our Constitution says. You're allowed says. to come and ask. A lot of them come. aren't going to make the grade. But all I'm saying is this. You know, I Look, I get the politics of it. This is not a complicated situation. I don't get the politics of it. And I, I don't get, get the it. big stick. I get the big stick. Oh, well, look, I get the xenophobia. I get the fear of someone saying, I'll tell you why things are harder for you. I'll tell you why it's harder to make ends meet and for send your kids and give them the life you want. It's because we're taking care of people like this. That's but bullshit. what I'm saying is you don't even have to let them in. That's bullshit. It's how you treat people you won't let in. That's what I'm saying. You know that's not right. You know that's not right. You can't say my, my, you know, oh, it's harder for you to do because somebody else is coming in. No, it doesn't. That's not how it works. That is just not how it works. That is a lie. That is people who are trading on fear for political purposes. And Yeah, because it works. That's what being a demagogue is all about, brother. You, you know, you're not going to have... People who come running around because you're giving them messages of hope and love all the time. When you hit somebody where they're scared, when you hit somebody where they're angry, that's powerful medicine in politics. I keep telling you, this president is no fool. He picked this issue for a reason. It works to motivate his base. In fact, I think it works better than any other issue. Well, My problem is, is that he's perverted it. For that convenience. And that's why he doesn't talk about the fact that you say all the time on your show that if you're so worried about people being here the wrong way, why aren't we at the airports lined up right now? Because they're overstaying visas as much as they walk across. Because they're not brown. They're not the brown menace as he cares. Here they come. Here they come. They're coming for the jobs and your women. People who come over from airplanes look like him. 
But I'll tell you, when we get to a point, man, when we get to a point where you look at a dead kid and a Mm -hmm. daddy and you say, that's on them. That's a cold place that I don't want to be. And I don't get it. When Stephen Miller said, you know, those words on the Statue of Liberty, that's not American policy. Man, did that. I've never heard anything like that before. Lady Liberty stands on the pedestal. The basis of her existence are those words. That's more concentration camp fucking bullshit. Democratic President Candidate Beto O'Rourke, migrants have no choice but to come here because of U.S. climate change excess. It's our fault, yeah. A lot of that now. They're getting articles. You'll see more. They just got all these articles with the, it's climate change. They have to come here because climate change. Nationwide protests on Tuesday, July 2nd, demanding the closure of inhumane immigrant detention centers, subjecting children and families to horrific conditions. Jacqueline Kyle Makin, Philippe Gomez, Zazano, our kids who died in custody. Jake Tapper, yeah, the father said that wasn't their fault, it was their fault. This is the old one where the kid and the father hadn't eaten and drinking in days, and by the time he got there on the bus, there was nothing anybody could do. Remember that? That was the first kid that died. That's all move on. Yeah, move on's pushing that. Who supplies money to move on? Oh, George Soros. Okay. But every time you say George Soros is pushing the immigration, you're a fucking Jew hater. Remember that? Yeah. Okay. Brittany Packett. Hey, NPR. I love y'all. But why do I keep hearing some anchors, reporters using the phrase illegal immigrants instead of undocumented people? This should be an easy one to get right. NPR. Sorry, that was a mistake. NPR's policy is not to characterize people as illegal. We slip up from time to time, but we'll keep working hard to get it right. Yeah. Then you got AOC still plugging along. She persisted, even though she's calling things concentration camps is wrong, even though she's fucking got caught faking bullshit with her pictures. This is her latest angle. The history of citizenship in the U.S. is deeply woven with the history of racism. It's been used as a legal enforcer of racism for most of U.S. history. Citizenship affords power, and that's why citizenship of African Americans was long denied, too, to both slaves and descendants. Dred Scott, blah, blah, blah. The first U.S. immigration law was the Chinese Exclusion Act. The national origin formula lasted until 65. I'm just paraphrasing. That's a key part of the policy. It's a wide range of issues from schooling to marijuana and, yes, immigration, too. Gotta love the rich irony of people who fondly recount stories of how their families' last names were changed on Ellis Island after their relatives snuck onto a boat escaping some horror. Blah, blah, blah. And now they're called illegal, and the world said, wait a minute. People going through Ellis were going legally, you dipshit. Then the next one. Truly, I say to you, as you did on one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The biblical values of AOC's democratic socialism. It's a whole article. Guthrie Graves Fitzsimmons. Democratic socialism and the Bible share a striking similar vision of what constitutes a fair and just society. Christians took the Bible seriously on this point. Activist politicians like AOC would not excite such vigorous oppositions. Whole article. It's all just, it's just like the queering of the Bible. I'm, I'm not fucking reading this. A lot of KKK in there. Yeah. Then, once again, she lies. 
Just left the first CBP facility. I see why CBP officers are being so physically and sexually threatened towards me. Officers were keeping women in cells with no water and had told them to drink out of the toilets. Uh, the toilets attached to the sink, dipshit. There's a picture. People showed it. Uh, whatever. Nobody cared. They went with AOC. This was them on their good behavior in front of members of Congress. Now I'm on my way to Clint where the Trump administration was denying children toothpaste and soap. This has been horrifying so far. It's so hard to understate the enormity of the problem. We're taking systematic cruelty with a dehumanizing culture that treats them like animals. What's haunting is that the woman I met with today told me in no uncertain terms that they would experience retribution for telling us what they shared. They all began sobbing out of fear of being punished, out of sickness, out of depression, lack of sleep, trauma, despair. Anna Garatelli, scoop. Representative AOC screamed at federal law enforcement agents in a threatening manner during a visit to the U.S. Border Patrol facility in El Paso, Texas, Monday afternoon, and refused to tour the facility according to two people who witnessed it. Apparently, AOC saw the terrible conditions of the detention facility despite refusing to actually tour it. Interesting. David Martosco. I haven't seen photo of the Clinton, Texas facility. The AOC described today, but it would be interesting if drinking from the toilet means drinking from an attached sink marked potable water, like this image from CBP holding facility in Tucson. Yeah, that would have, should have probably changed the news reporting, if not the propaganda war. Anyone seen the inside of Clint facility? Did AOC take photos today? I'm genuinely curious. Curious? No, she did not. No, she did not. Anybody listen to the last podcast, you heard her. Majority of her fucking district is illegals. Which says everything you need to know about New York. People... She's saying immigrant. Immigrant is code word for illegal. So she didn't tour it. She just, once again, persisted with her lies. Was the aggressor. And the beat goes on. Two other subjects. WAPO, Pulitzer Prize winner. Perspective. Camilla Harris wore black that was both unremarkable and theatrically powerful. Editor's note. Yeah, it was a Navy. It was Navy. It wasn't black. But, you know, hey. What the fuck? We're in such a zeal to make Camilla Harris a thing because she has two checks on the uh, intersectionality scorecard but does horrible with black voters. Do you guys not want to win? That's what I'm asking. I don't think you do, and neither does everybody else. Rachel Bade, overheard while watching the debate just now. I'm not sure I'm a Democrat anymore. Democrat next to me complaining about how far left the party has moved that Bill Clinton wouldn't qualify as a Democrat anymore in the eyes of this crazy bunch. And surprisingly, there were sound bites of people on TV saying the same thing. That we saw on stage. One of them, of course, was the progressive versus the moderate. Mm-hmm. Joe Biden, moderates, plural, right. maybe. Um, and the issue of just where the party is going and sort of how you how you get there. I think it was remarkable what we saw as far as the rhetoric, especially on immigration. The the way that they talked about it, all raising their hands when they said health care coverage for immigrants. This is something. And can I tell you? 
I'm on texting with, with Trump campaign uh -huh. sources. They love oh, it. They love Christmas. It. Yeah. Compared to Christmas. Gleeful. This is a proposal that California became the first state to experiment with just this year. This is not a consensus position in American politics. In fact, when when the, the Trump campaign's internal polling came out and they were trying to explain it and they, they were trying to spin it well, this was the issue that they noted changed the poll numbers the greatest amount when they suggested that Joe Biden supported health care coverage for undocumented immigrants. They love this. This is a, a, a sea change in the Democratic Party's rhetoric on this. Uh, and I think the fact that they all raised their hand for that question was a, was a really telling moment. We will see that clip again. Aaron and Kimberly, stay with me here. Paul Butler, pleasure to have you on. Thank you, my friend. Appreciate it. We've got a lot more in the Democratic debate, including new reaction from voters in two pivotal... I think this is a terrible mistake for Democrats. For the minimal benefit you get in reassuring the left in the Democratic Party, you risk alienating a whole segment of America and worse, playing into this socialism theme that Donald Trump has come up with. I don't agree with this notion that whatever you say, he's going to say socialist. There's sometimes when you leap with your chin and you give him an opening. And I fear for the Democrats that this may be one of them. Mr. Sykes, I must turn to you because before the debate, you wrote a piece titled, Dear Democrats, Here's how to guarantee Trump's re-election. You're essentially warning candidates, if they shift too far to the left, they will give the next election to the president. Well, I look like uh, everybody read my article and decided to ignore each and every point that I made because uh, that was a debate about um, you know who is moving farther left. Elizabeth Warren and other candidates doubled down on the fact that, yes, um, Medicare for all means you are going to abolish all private medical insurance in this country. Uh, trust me, uh, that is a huge gift to Donald Trump. I have to tell you, the Trump people are very, very happy this morning the way the Democrats are positioning themselves outside, what they regard as outside the mainstream of American politics. The Democrats are running around, and, and like last night, for instance, you saw them uh, moving so far to the left that they were walking in circles, right? Like they just <laughs> just kind of listing left and left until they got, got in circles. And that's what Trump is banking on. Uh, those All those fights happened last night, that, you know, with people moving to the left. These people are sitting there thinking... Please, please, please have more Democratic debates that look like this uh, because it's yeah. an opportunity for them to paint the Democrats as being out of touch. Our next hate tweet comes a little something like this. Jimmy Carter talks shit about Trump being illegitimate. Media jerk off to it. We have some brand new comments from Jimmy Carter, which I'm sure if they've gotten him are going to rile the president and raising some eyebrows. He said this just minutes ago. I think the interference, although not yet quantified, uh, if fully investigated, it would show that Trump didn't actually win the election in 2016. He lost the election, and he was put into office because the Russians interfered on his behalf. So do you believe President Trump is an illegitimate president? <laughs> Based on what I just said, which I can't retract. <laughs> wow. Um... What do you make of that? I mean, a lot of Democrats, frankly, feel that way. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's an extraordinary statement from by a former, former president. From a former president, and the answer is we're we don't know. We're not sure. I mean, one of the things that I write about in my book that's coming out this fall is the efforts that Russia made to repress and suppress the vote, to suppress the black vote, to turn out the vote for Jill Stein. The number of votes that Jill Stein got in Michigan and Pennsylvania were 
larger than the margin of victory of Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. So these are the kinds of facts that I agree with Jimmy Carter. It needs to be investigated. We need to try to find out as closely and accurately as possible how much influence Russia did have on that election. Yeah, yeah, that's just that's just fucking perfect. Brian Schatz, never Trumpers are welcome to the coalition. It's just that they can't dictate the terms. That's all. So come on over here and vote with us, but we still fucking hate you. Tomorrow, apartheid stuff, because i got stuff out of sorts here. I apologize. I did this really quick last night in between appointments, and I kind of got things out of whack. Uh, climate apartheid. This goes more with AOC, two stories before. Apartheid to push $120 million into poverty by 2030, UN says. So I'm confused. Are we back to 12 years? Then Bloomberg, dig this shit. It's starting to get awfully hot outside. The electric air conditioners we used to stay cool aren't helping. And a whole article, Ben K84, I don't think it's ridiculous to say that hundreds of thousands of people would die every year if we eliminated AC. Bloomberg will not, of course, be giving up its climate-controlled Manhattan office tower. This article is that we're not supposed to have AC anymore. If you use an AC, you're killing the planet. So the article and this person... Maybe he read it. I don't know, because here's the beginning of the article. With temperatures in Europe and everywhere else soaring, demand for air conditioning is booming. The extra power demand may cause a vicious circle on warming. So when temperatures in Berlin rose to an uncomfortable 99 degrees this week, a record for the month of June, I was uncommonly delighted to go to the Bloomberg office where it's artificially and blissfully cool. I joke on the show that they all want us to live in cages or caves, except for them. They want us to bike, except they take limos to fucking uh, detention facilities. Now they don't want us to have air conditioning. Are you fucking shitting me? Jackasses. Another hate tweet. Taylor Swift paints Scooter Braun as manipulative bullying as Big Machine sells her catalog. For years, I asked, pleaded for a chance to own my work. Instead, I was given an opportunity to sign back up to Big Machine Records and earn one album back at a time. One for every new one I turned out. I walked away because I knew once I signed that contract, Scott Burchett would sell the label, thereby selling me in my future. I had to make the excruciating choice to leave behind my past. Music I wrote on my bedroom floor and videos I dreamed up and paid for from the money I earned playing in bars, then clubs, then arenas, then stadiums, then shut the fuck up. What music? It's the same thing. Men are bad. Look at my squad. <laughs> Social justice now. I mean, shut up. You were a cute little girl and you turn into a fucking hella monster like everybody else. Two more tweets of the day. Confident 77. K-O-N-F-I-D-E-N-T. Male privilege. I checked this. This is all true. Death in battle, man 97.7%, women 2.3%. Homelessness, men 62, women 38. Suicide, men 77.9, women 22.1. Homicide, men 77.4, women 22.6. Workplace death, men 93, women 7. University graduates, men 40, women 60, thanks to Title IX. Winners of custody, women 82.2, men 17.8. So where's the privilege? I, I don't know where it's at. Somebody talk to me. 
Next one, this NBC show is the latest to tumble in the ratings. Apparently, the people at Liberal MSD and C Channel don't want their counterpart at CNN to feel lonely in the ratings cellar. Whether or not that was the motivation for the eight-week debut of Sunday Night Politics program, the results are still the same. Low ratings and little interest. The 8 p.m. show hosted by frequent morning Joe jackass Donnie Deutsch. According to an article on Mediate, early returns are not promising. The post quoted data from the Nielsen rating website revealing that Saturday Night Politics pulled down 749,000 overall viewers in its most recent airing and 82% in the demo. However, MSD's silver lining with the show is that its weak ratings are still an improvement. In total viewer category year over year, averaging 799,000 compared to 584 for O'Donnell. Nobody watches that show. He's a jackass. The article also noted that the program has a long way to go in order to make inroads against time slot leader Fox News' Waters World. Of course, the most recent episode of Waters' program drew 1.5 million viewers and 182 in the key demographic, more than double than Deutsch's. As in those ratings were embarrassing enough, Cellar Dweller CNN used to time slot show an encore presentation of the documentary Nothing Left Unsaid, Gloria Vanderbilt and Anderson Cooper. As newsbusters reported in May, Deutsch has no shame when it comes to slamming Republicans and praising Democrats. He used to guest appearance on the 11th hour. Just a few days later, the Morning Joe contributor sang the praise of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi as competent, bright, dynamic, strong woman against a frightened, frail, weakened, clearly out-of-touch man. Morning Joe doesn't do much better. They get their ass kicked by Fox and Friends, which I can't stand. But my wife watches. First time Fox has been on in this house for a long time. She's been watching it lately. Chase CEO credits Trump tells Yahoo tax reform was needed. And it make the headlines. And then we got a soundbite to then do the tweet of the day. It would seem like it's a hate tweet. Because I hate this motherfucker, I hate the network, and I hate how journalism is right now. But I got a point on the backside. Okay, (laughs) President Trump was quite excited to meet with Kim Jong-un, as we know, as he has been. And I think it's important to go back in the time machine and show how over at Fox, Mm. the commentators were appalled when candidate Barack Obama suggested that he might ever sit down with Kim Jong-un. So we have a little clip, courtesy of the Internet, of then their feelings and now. From this is horrible to the Nobel Peace Prize, Brian. It's really we could have gone that 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 clip goes on for three minutes if you want. Yeah. To now this on. news found all these clips from the Obama years that do prove the hypocrisy. I think two things are going on. There's a conservative media apparatus that, of course, is hypocritical about this. It props up Trump, and then the rest of the media, I think, is still grading Trump on a curve. Sometimes there are strange comments he's making during his Asia trip, not knowing what busing means, talking about Western style liberalism, thinking it means California. Weird, strange comments that I think did he not also get enough attention. John over the weekend. Bolton. Mike Bolton. Mike Bolton instead singer. of John Bolton. Yes, that's a way. great singer. You know, I think those kinds of comments never get caught up by Fox. That, that kind of strange behavior and mistakes never get noticed by conservative media outlets, but they also don't get enough attention from, from the rest of the news media. Uh, over at Fox, though, it is, is much more of a hermetically sealed chamber when it comes to this kind of hip hop. So that is a normal, everyday occurrence. I know. Why would you do that soundbite, Tony? Brian Seltzer and his, you know, jerk off fetish 
over Fox News. CNN Seltzer to write hate book on unprecedented merging of Trump and Fox News. Everybody over there is doing stuff to write a book about it. Doing stuff to write a book about it. That's all they do. That's how Acosta got his book. The only one who wrote a book over there that wasn't about himself was Tapper, and it was about the Army and the Outpost. That was a good book, but that's what they do. And Mr. Book himself, Acosta, got dick slapped by Trump, which is our co-tweet of the day soundbite. Hunter Biden, the son of former vice president and presidential hopeful Joe Biden, gave a forceful response to President Trump's suggestion that he be investigated for his business dealings involving China and Ukraine. In an interview with The New Yorker, Hunter Biden said, I don't care. you, Mr. President. Here I am living my life. Trump made the suggestion that the Justice Department conduct an investigation into both Joe and Hunter Biden in May during an interview with Steve Hilton on Fox News. I just love how he talks to Acosta. I'm sorry. I know it's not presidential, but I don't give a fuck. Acosta is not a journalist. Our other tweet of the day sound without the sound bite that I used to love playing with the yay. Um, Fareed Zakaria, super liberal, jackass, Islamist. I hate this motherfucker, but he just, say, he just dismantles the Democrats' immigration craziness. And that will take us into a music break. And news, social media nuggets. Here's my take. Given President Trump's mean-spirited and often bigoted attitudes on immigration, it pains me to say this, but he is right that the United States faces a crisis with its asylum system. Democrats might hope that the out-of-control situation at the southern border undermines Trump's image among his base as a tough guy who can tackle immigration, but they should be careful it could actually work to the president's advantage. Since 2014, the flow of asylum seekers into the United States has skyrocketed. Last year, immigration courts received 162,000 asylum claims, a 240% increase from 2014. The result is a staggering backlog with more than 300,000 asylum cases pending and the average immigration case has been pending for more than 700 days. It's also clear that the rules surrounding asylum are vague, lax, and being gamed. The initial step for many asylum seekers is to convince officers that they have a credible fear of persecution in their home countries, and about 75% meet that criteria. Some applicants for asylum have suspiciously similar stories using identical phrases. Many simply use the system to enter the U.S. and then melt into the shadows or gain a work permit while their application is pending. Asylum is meant to be granted to a very small number of people in extreme circumstances, not as a substitute for the process of immigration itself. Yet the two have gotten mixed up. As The Atlantic's David Frum has pointed out, the idea of a right to asylum is a relatively recent one dating to the early years of the Cold War. Guilt-ridden over the rejection of many Jewish refugees during World War II, the UN created a right of asylum to protect those who were fleeing regimes where they would be killed or imprisoned because of their identity or beliefs. This standard has gotten broader and broader over the years and now includes threats of gang warfare and domestic violence. 
these looser criteria, coupled with the reality that this is a safe way to enter the U.S., have made the asylum system easy to abuse. Applications from Hondurans, Guatemalans and Salvadorans have surged even though the murder rate in their countries has been cut in half. More broadly, hundreds of millions of people around the world who live in poor, unstable regions where threats of violence abound could easily apply for asylum. Do they all have the legal right to enter the U.S. through a back door, bypassing the normal immigration process? The Trump administration's approach has been mostly to toughen up the criteria, hire more judges, push Mexico to keep applicants from entering the U.S. But a much larger fix is needed. The criteria for asylum need to be rewritten and substantially tightened. The number of courts and officials dealing with asylum must be massively expanded. People should not be able to use asylum claims as a way to work in America. There needs to be a much greater cooperation with the home countries of these applicants rather than insults, threats and aid freezes. No one fix will do it, but we need the kind of sensible bipartisan legislation that has resolved past immigration crises. Democrats have spent most of their efforts on this topic assailing the Trump administration for its heartlessness. Fine. But that does not address the roots of this genuine crisis. If things continue to spiral downward and America's southern border seems out of control, Trump's tough rhetoric and hardline stands will become increasingly attractive to the public. Keep in mind that the rise of populism in the Western world is almost everywhere tied to fears of growing out-of-control immigration. Welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast with Tony Reid. 
Trying to get crazy with this, see? Don't you know I'm local? Now it's time for news and social media nuggets. The crazy stuff that makes your host lose his mind. Military corner, Pentagon identifies Green Beret and Explosive Ordnance Disposal Specialist killed in Afghanistan. Spe- spe- Special Forces Master Sergeant Michael B. Riley, 32, and Sergeant James G. Johnston, 24. Simultaneously this week, Taliban attack and kill eight election officials in Afghanistan. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't understand. Almost 20 years come this November. Louisville researcher freeze-dried blood could save soldiers' lives. Yeah, I just read that. L professor Michael Manz and Jonathan Kopech, as well as Ph.D. candidate Brett Janis, have spent two years developing freeze-dried approach to storing blood, which has drawn interest from the military and NASA. Men's and Kopech, with the help of Janice, as well as various UofL students, have devised a process of preserving red blood cells through freezing and dehydration. The cells are turned into power that remains viable at a wider range of temperatures than donated blood. They believe the approach can make donated red blood cells more easily stored and transported. When someone donates blood, it's separated into different components, including plasma, patlets, and red blood cells. And then I guess they just put it back together, and it's blood again. That's some crazy shit. But think of your medic, for those that are military, was walking around with freeze-dried blood. And he can rehydrate that shit and pump it into you when you have a serious wound. That would be just earth-shaking, to be quite honest. How many people you could save on the helicopter, you know, inbound to the mash. Uniformed soldiers and cops attend funeral of a five-year-old who wanted to be an army man. He was too young for an official military burial, but he certainly got a military send-off. It was a farewell worthy of army man the River Oakley Nemo wanted to be when he grew up. Oakley, as he was known to many, died of neuroblastoma at age five last Thursday after fighting the rare cancer for more than half a short life. His family invited military members to a funeral, and on Tuesday they complied with dozens of police officers and soldiers, all in uniform, showing up to honor the boy. He was promoted to honorary colonel by the National Guard in Little Rock. That's pretty cool. You won't see that nationwide, though, because who gives a shit? Army to adjust standards for new combat fitness tests this fall? Eh, it looks like it's too easy, so... People are going to be adjusted to make it harder. Oh. 
This Army sergeant just nailed the first ever perfect score in a service rifle shooting competition. The Fort Benning soldier and member of the Army Marksmanship Unit service rifle team set a national record with the first ever perfect score on a National Rifle Association high-power rifle course in Oak Ridge, Tennessee earlier this month. The NRA 80-shot regional high-powered rifle course includes four separate matches, each with slow fire and rapid fire elements. According to the Army, those matches include two sight two sighting shots and 20 standing slow fire record shots at 200 yards and within 20 minutes two sighting shots and 20 kneeling sitting rapid fire record shots at 200 yards with 2 minutes two sighting shots and 20 prone rapid fire record shots at 300 yards with 2 minutes and 20 seconds two sight shots and 20 prone slow fire record shots at 600 yards with 20 minutes and 20 seconds Rocking an M16A2 rifle, the Ohio native nailed the 10 ring on all 80 shots. That's a target that's just 7 inches at both 200 and 300 yards and 12 inches at 600. According to the Guns.com, Marine Gunnery Sergeant Julia L. Waters, Waterson owned the previous service rifle high score of 798. Wow. That's fucking high speed. What's not high speed, Navy cancels Super Hornet demonstration amid aviation budget shortfall. I don't understand why we can't cough up some cash for that. A funny story, add black bars and beers to your lame military photos with the Operator app. Yeah, it's like a Snapchat filter that adds black bars and beards to all your boot pics. Hmm. And in our continued series of Going back and seeing people getting upgraded awards, Army Aviator gets DSC for using his Blackhawk as a big metal shield. Retired Captain Christopher C. Palumbo received the second highest award a U.S. soldier can earn in a combat during a ceremony at Fort Bragg. Distinguished Service Cross is awarded to Palumbo by a fellow Army Aviator, Vice Chief of Staff James C. McConville, who used to be the commander of the 101st. For his actions on April 11, 2005, while serving as a UH-60 Black Ops pilot in command in southeastern Afghanistan, Palumbo was originally given the Silver Star. Chief Warrant Officer 3 at the time, Palumbo was part of a quick reaction force when his crew was called to infill a special forces team responding to an ambush on an Afghan National Army convoy in the mountains, according to a copy of his archived citation. Palumbo's crew dropped off the SF team after a pair of AH-64 Apaches had already arrived and forced the insurgents to flee deeper into the mountains. Upon landing and making contact, the U.S. soldiers confirmed the Afghans were not injured and decided to recon the area looking for militants. The AH-64 flew to an area and saw three suspected militants and Chief Warrant Officer 3 Palumbo inserted the Special Forces team to neutralize the threat. Silver Star citation reads, The soldiers were successful, but they didn't realize that most of the insurgents were embedded in the caves. At that point, a gunfight bro- broke out. Two of the ground troops were hit. When the Apaches had to leave to refuel, the Blackhawks were left to provide support and protection for their comrades. The rocky, steep cliff the soldiers were on made it too dangerous to land. Instead, he began flying his Blackhawk between the wounded friendlies and the insurgents, allowing his crew to alternate and engage the enemy. Continue to rotate this helicopter so that his gunner would switch off, engaging the insurgents and reloading, maintaining suppressive fire on their positions. And he is a bad mamma jamma. Wow. <clears throat> For those who don't know, Blackhawks are not armored, folks. It's just a fucking piece of tin. 
Not good. Tim Kemeny and Sam Hammer bring our last military segment. I think it's tragic when one kneels during the national anthem. I believe they do it out of ignorance and privilege. I do not know. I do know that every man and woman that wears a uniform with an American flag on their shoulder would willingly die protecting that person's right to do so. That's Tim Kennedy. Sam Hammer, dumbass. You are a foolish idiot. Your freedom and our flag and those that fought and died for freedom are the reason you can be so stupid. Pick a different venue to do this. Why disrespectful? Why disrespect all vets and those that gave their lives so you can be free? And once again... It's Megan Rappenhoe, which will start our college crazy. I hate this lady. I mean, all the shit. Every fucking podcast, we have a segment on this fucking bitch. I said it. I don't care. Call me a sexist. She's a bitch, and she's not a sex, so I can't be a sexist. I mean, she said she's an it, right? There's no sex. Everything's fluid. I don't fucking know. She's confusing, but the media love her. USA Today sport attacks on Raging Trump, appeared to be coordinating media campaign. Over the weekend, USA Today coverage of the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team playing the World Cup in France could have easily been thought of as a well-coordinated attack on President Trump. Saturday's online edition carried three politically charged stories on the soccer team, one fourth of the day's top stories list, paying little attention to the team's actual play on the field. Nancy Armour wrote the story, USWNT's Crager explains her grope remark, and Rapinoe gets last word in U.S. Women's National Team win over France. Oh, you barely won. What are you talking about? Jesse Yamatov wrote, AOC invites Rapinoe to the White House. To the House, not to the White House. One of the left-stream partisan papers' major theme is that President Trump attack on one of the team's best players, Megan Rapinoe, and left in the photo after scoring a goal versus France Friday. Unprovoked, Rapinoe blasted Trump more than a month prior to the World Cup, and has continued her beef since less than a week ago. She said, I'm not going to the fucking White House. Trump responded to social media, which was his first entrance in the dispute. She started weeks earlier. Yum Top Stories noted several U.S. women's national team players have said they won't visit the White House after the World Cup. So, Representative AOC extended an invitation to the team to tour the House of Representatives. After Friday's 2-1 win against France in the quarterfinals, AOC tweeted, It may not be the White House, but we'd be happy to welcome M. Poe and the entire U.S. W.M. whatever the fuck, a tour of the House of Representatives. M. Poe is Rappahoe. The U.S. player has been waging an anti-Trump campaign for several weeks and who stands silently without her hand over her heart during the pre-match national anthem. Already accepted a socialist representative invitation. Consider it done, AOC, Rappahoe said. Yom Tov called Trump's Wednesday three-part tweet calling on Rappahoe to respect the flag and extend an invitation to the whole team to visit the White House, win or lose, a tweet storm. He wrote, Trump raged at month-old video of Rappahoe saying, I'm not going to the ex- fucking expletive White House. The same day, American player Ali Krieger made headline between that Trump gets angered by women he cannot control or grope. But it's Trump who's attacking the whole, the woke soccer players, not the other way around. According to USA Today's slanted narrative, Armour, the USA Today's columnist leading the anti-Trump coverage, echoed Yom Tov's language by defending Krieger. Everyone should have a friend like Ali Krieger. I don't want a friend like her. She's a fucking asshole. After President Trump made Ra- Megan Rappenhoe the target of his latest Twitter rage storm, Krieger fired off a fiery tweet of her own. I know women who you cannot control a grope. Anger you. Armour kept the script quite well. Trump has taken issue with month-old video of Rappenhoe, blah, blah, blah. 
This older stance on the national anthem is a regular occurrence in World Cup where the U.S. has played five games and Rapinoe has snubbed it five times. Krager was quoted as saying of her grope remark, it doesn't take a lot of a mind space to tweet something like that. That's really important. And then refocus and turn it off. Women can multitask. Imagine that, that we can do two things at once. Yes, play soccer and attack the president of the most powerful nation of the earth simultaneously. A real talent. But wait a minute. We just read an article. You don't want to be called women. You want to be called soccer players or something. I don't know. Of Rapinoe's defiance, Krager said her teammate is just a great representation of what our country's all about. I'm grateful to be one of her friends, and we scissor every night. Did I just say that? That was inappropriate. Oh, I'm sorry, because they're both lesbos. Well, okay. Do your thing, but, you know, don't say we're friends. You're fuck buddies. Armour's second story was purely a puff piece, a rapid hoe. She said that by scoring the both goals in the 2-1 to U.S. victory in Friday's quarter ma- final match, Rapinoe had gotten the last word on Trump. The opponent was actually France, not POTUS again. Rapinoe was portrayed as an innocent victim. Being the center of international firestorm is no one's idea of fun, and most people would still be curled up in a ball if they'd been on the receiving end of a rage tweet for Trump. As Rapinoe was earlier this week, over months old comments she made about the White House. But Rapinoe is wired that way. The tweets, the criticism, the total fucking shit show circus that she hoped the U.S.-France quarterfinal would be. She doesn't shrink from it. She thrives on it. Obsessed with Trump and Rap and Ho, Armour had earlier in the week written, Trump learns he can't bully Rap and Ho. Trump demands himself by raging at Rap and Ho. It's the second article out of her stories on the top and remarkably one labeled, only one is opinion. Yeah. You know, when this happened in Obama's era, those people were condemned, trashed in the media, called pieces of shit, maybe focus on the game when you barely win it was, well, maybe if they weren't talking shit about Obama. Do we remember this? I do. It. I, I said it last podcast. It's the first time in my life I'm not rooting. I give a fuck. I mean, I don't watch soccer, but I usually root for America because I'm an American. Call me a nationalist patriot. I love this country. But people like you, go fuck yourself. Next sports article, Sports Illustrated hoists red flag at former NBA coach Mark Jackson's Christian beliefs. Yeah. While promoting his new book, The Sixth Man at the Breakfast Club in New York, Warriors forward Andre Udugala said he believes Jackson may be the victim of blackballing by the NBA for expressing his religious belief about homosexuality. Jackson is a pastor as Golden State coach often livestream church services. The Shadow League, J.R. Gamble, explains that in 2013, Jackson became public enemy number one, sort of speak, to the LGBTQ EIEIO community when he made some controversial comments when NBA player Jason Collins came out. As a Christian man, I believe in what's right and what's wrong. That being said, I know Jason Collins, I know his family, and I'm certainly praying for them at this time. That's controversial. Okay. Mm-hmm. Jackson's alleged intolerance spread around the league like wildfire in his current climate. Hiring a man with a strong views against gay lifestyle as the face of a franchise wouldn't be beneficial to any team's public image, Campbell wrote. Right, and I think we're talking, this is Amy Campbell, 
Um, right, and I think when we're talking about religious beliefs and acceptance, when some people's religious beliefs are not accepting of other people's lifestyles, you can kind of have a little bit of a conflict there, especially when I think about the NBA being the most progressive sport league in the country and how accepting and tolerant the NBA is, all those types of things, and how celebrating the NBA is all different things you just can't see where that could be a red flag of the coaches and, you know, a superstar winning, no questions asked type of caliber coach, and they go on that he's a piece of shit because he's a Christian. Okay. How is it uh, non-tolerance saying, I know what right and wrong is and I'm praying for his family? That's not really saying anything. It's not like he said, fuck that faggot. I can understand bringing it up and making it a story if it was, fuck that faggot. That's, like, bad, but not, I'm praying for him. See, that's the liberal world, man. If you pray for somebody, oh, sweet Jesus, don't you do that with your fake religion. To college. Sorry, I didn't do that sports shit up front because it was tied in the military. Rutgers hosts event focusing on dismantling white organizational culture. I don't even know what the fuck that is, but okay. New York Jersey campus of New Jersey school held recognize and dismantling white organizational culture to help attendees foster leadership growth and development. One of the tweets that we could tweet is white United Statesian culture. What the fuck? What is that? Throughout the event, attendees will be taught to understand what is white United Statesian culture. Oh, we're going to find out. Here we go. Understand the belief and values of white United Statesian culture. Recognize the characteristics of white United Statesian culture in the organizations. Begin to explore the impact the culture has on professionals in the field and learn antidotes to dismantle white organizational culture. Okay. I've read it. I still don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Let's read some more. Uh, while the event page claims the workshop is valued at 120 per person, the official cost list the event has pay what you can because nobody wants to go. <laughs> Bonnie Cushing, an anti-racist organizer and licensed clinical social worker, is scheduled to lead the workshop. Cushing sits on the board of Center for the Study of White American Culture as vice president and also does work for Center for Racial Justice and Education. We got a whole bunch of goddamn groups. Cushing was lead editor of Accountability and White Anti-Racist Organizing Stories for Our Work. That's a fucked up title. And is in the process of editing a book on spiritualized racial justice practice. We're just making our job. We're just making ways to make money. That's all we're doing. Okay. This topic was selected and identified by our guest editor, Alfred Hermida. He is an extensive digital journalism scholar, has been studying a variety of global trends in the news industry, and felt that the topic would be best to tackle in 2020 for the International Symposium on Online Journalism Journal, which nobody reads. Yeah. White. United Statesian. What? what? We're just making up words. VSU forbids student organizing from violating public morals. Not reading it. I'm just going to say that. What are the public morals? Oh, liberal ones. You can do all that freaky shit, but you pray. Go fuck yourself. Actors, producers, and more call out Bowling's Green State for changing theater name. Decisions stem from the University Task Force report, which was sparked by the school's black student union criticism of Gish's role model and the birth of the nation. 
a critically acclaimed movie depicting the U.S. Civil War and the KKK, according to Bowling Green Independent News. The movie depicted male actors of blackface and included negative stereotypes of black people. BGSU convened the task force in February to provide guidance to university administrator regarding the potential renaming of the Dorothy and Lillian Gish Film Theater. The task force reporter recommended the building be renamed and educational material be displayed to show the contribution of Lillian Gish, who won an honorary Oscar in 71 to, f- to film as well as the history of the rebuilding itself. While the task force acknowledged that neither of the Gish sisters appeared to be advocates of racial behavior, it described Lillian Gish's participation in the birth of the nation central, and thus her image evokes and embodies the racism explicit in it. Guilty by association. The college board of trustees decided May to rename the building upon the recommendation of both the task force and the university president, Rodney Rogers. But dozens of actors, actresses, and others have signed a letter supporting the Gish sisters and criticizing the school's decision to rename the theater. This controversy detracts from the great legacy Gish left us in her extensive and varied career. For the university to dishonor her by signaling out just one film, however offensive it is, it's unfortunate and unjust, the letter written by Michael Kaplan, Lillian Gish's last movie producer, states. Doing so makes her a scapegoat in a broader political debate. A university should be a bastion of free speech. This is a supreme teachable moment if it can be handled with more nuanced sense of history. Yeah. That's the feminist running into the everything's racist. It's got to be hard to be a liberal. That's all I'm saying. It's hard to be a liberal, man. You, you are never woke the fuck enough. All right, more tranny stuff. Connecticut trans athlete policy makes women spectator in their own sport. Oh, don't say it's true. Female athletes have filed a legal complaint against a Connecticut policy that allows transgender athletes to compete as their gender of choice. Conservative nonprofit Alliance Defending Freedom is an advocate for Selena Soule and two minor female athletes. ADF filed an official discrimination complaint to the U.S. Department of Education Office for Civil Rights on June 17th, claiming that new Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference policy allowed allowing biological males to identify as women to compete in female athletic deprives the female athletes of equal opportunity. The large number of girls around the nation, each complaint has trained much of her life, striving to shave mere fractions of seconds off the race time. In order to experience a personal satisfaction of victory, gain opportunity to participate in state and regional meets, gain access to some opportunities to be recruited and offered athletic scholarships by college and more, say the AAF's complaint. Those dreams and goals, those opportunities for participation, recruitment, and scholarship are now being directly and negatively impacted by a new policy that is permitting boys who are male in every biological and physiological respect, including unaltered male hormone levels and musculature, to compete in girls' athletic competitions if they claim a female identity. Soleil stated on Tucker Carlson that she missed qualifying for the regional New England track and field championship meet by just two places, finishing in eighth place when the top six advanced. She stated that two of the finishers who placed above her were dudes. Girls deserve to compete on a level playing field, Christine Hocum, the council said. Forcing female athletes to compete against boys is grossly unfair and destroys their athletic opportunities. Title IX was designed to eliminate discrimination against women in education and athletics, and women fought long and hard to earn the equal athletic opportunities that Title IX provides. 
allowing boys to compete in girls' sports reverses nearly 50 years of advances for women. We shouldn't be forced these young women to be spectators in their own sports. Yeah. The last sentence is what I've been saying since this shit came down. Girls competing against boys know the outcome before the race even starts. They can't win. Boys will always have physical advantage over girls. That's the reason we have women's sports. Ba-bam! Yeah, that's that's a fact, Jack. I mean, seriously, that's just a fact. The PC world that is the military has women and men standards. There are women that can whip men's ass. There are women that can outrun men, outlift men, etc. But those are freaks. Not like freaks, but you know what I mean. They're just freaks of nature. It's not normal. The norm, the standard, the biology, the physiology... This is just fucking science, man. You're the party of science. But you blow this off. But I just keep covering this because I think it's just, it's like a last story. The wokeness. We have spent the Obama years. Women shouldn't have to pay for fucking tampons. It should be bequeathed to them. Free birth control. Women in Handmaid's Tale. Oh my God, we're making better factories. But then the tranny shit comes in. It's like, oh, shut your fucking yap hole, bitch. I mean, what the fuck? There's going to be a scrap. I love it. Which moves us into more. King County Libraries drag queen story hours, engage many, and enrage others. This is in, of course, Washington. For more than a year, Drag Queen Story Hour is carried on a family-friendly offering of the King County Library System. How is that fucking family-oriented? I mean, fucking seriously. Seriously. What's fucking next? BDSM Kindergarten. Have your kids exposed to people ramming shit up each other's asses. Yeah, that's family hour. I saw that on Disney. Attracting about the same amount of attention as a puppet show, Mandarin and Arabic story times, and stay in play. The activity is just a sound. Drag queen resplendent in colorful, sparking costumes. Read the kids. You could tell it's written by a liberal. Kids and their parents. The point, organizers say, is imagination and play and allowing young children to glimpse at a world free of prescribed gender roles. No boys' clothes, no girls' clothes. But we really don't need to do that to teenagers. But whatever the fuck, it's indoctrination. It's the religion. It's a 45th commandment of liberalism. But a couple of weeks ago, ahead of a teen pride event at the system's rented branch that featured a drag performance, irate callers jammed the phone lines. After a mention of local conservative radio, an appeal for so-called activist mommy Elizabeth Johnson to her 640,000 Facebook followers to condemn the event, as they had with other drag queen story hour events around the country. The Renton Library staff was overwhelmed. If patrons wanted information on the book, they'd have to wait or stop by in person. Supporters struck back on Thursday, the last DQSH of the year, time to close out Pride Month. More than 400 kids and parents showed up at the Fairwood branch in Renton to hear Drake King Thaddeus read Julian is a Mermaid. With finger-length false eyelashes, black eyeliner, glittery beard, and a shimmering neon green and blue outfit, accessorized with platform shoes, he stood prime to perform. 
Find fishes swimming in the water, he sang, along with Fairwood Children's Librarian Bernadette Saligato. Bubble, bubble. Those of you who came here against some hatred in our community, I want to thank you, Thaddeus said to the crowd. He explained the overflow audience spilling out of the library meeting room to the main floor that drag as form of entertainment where people of sexual orientation dress up and perform is highly stylized ways. At one point, King County Sheriff Mitzit Jagakabagak walked to the front of the room and said that as a member of the LGBTQ community, it's inspiring to see everyone here. Outside, competing shouts of love and shame boomed around the entryway where about 300 story hour supporters outnumbered roughly 75 protesters. I decided to come today because I think what these people are doing are wrong. This is everything I stand against, said a young woman who identified himself only as a Fairwood community member. We need to protect our children. But this is what it sounded like at this little story time. that because of course this article is not going to show that crazy fucking shit from tweets Kaylee Thriller Triller at Kaylee T my friend was just protesting a drag show at a teen pride event in a library handouts included flavored condoms lube and binders to help eight self-hating girls mutilate their bodies the library told all of adults to leave my friend had refused and was escorted out by the police this is what demonic possession looks like watch to the end I know a lot of y'all don't believe in the spiritual realm, but thanks for bearing with me anyway. In my opinion, this is it. On all fours, growling at a teen pride event. L.N. Smidley. I don't expect the video would be that much worse than the still pick. Good God. If you don't believe in demon possession, you probably believe in mental illness, and I don't know how one can make an argument. This is same drag queen event for teens in Renton, Washington. Children as young as 10 attended and what exactly are they cheering for this is what happens when you try to normalize insanity people in charge should be held accountable for letting these whack jobs take center stage in front of kids if you want to pay for this kind of show do it for in front of adults 
There are people who think this is perfectly fine, and then there are sane people. The two categories are mutually exclusive. The things so obvious, they shouldn't have to be explained. Disliking drag queen culture, especially when posed on minors, is not the same as hating gay people at all. It's kind of like how disliking patriarchy is not the same as hating men. But it's indoctrination. They want to indoctrinate people. And if they can get these kids to see the drag queens, maybe they'll be more likely to vote Democrat. I mean, this crazy shit surfaced again. Men identify as women are being invited for cervical smear test, even though they don't have a, tur- a fucking cervix. Omen, who identify as a male, are not being offered vital routine breast screenings and cervical cancer checks in case it offends them. What are you smearing their ass? They don't have a cervix. Are you shoving it up their wang? That's not called a pap smear. That's called check for fucking sexually transmitted disease. But it's a culture war. Gay golf commentator. PGA too white, too Christian, too conservative. He did an op-ed. Gay men are nearly invisible in golf, but we're not non-existent. And then he goes about saying everybody who's not gay and who believes in God are pieces of shit. Then there's California. California is adopting LGBT inclusive history textbooks. It's the latest chapter in a century-long fight. Fourth graders in California will soon be learning the story of stagecoach driver named Charlie Parkhurst, who is described by the California State Parks Department as a tobacco chewer, a bandit shooter, and one of the best in the biz. Like other drivers, Parkhurst became part of the historical fabric of California during the gold rush. Unlike other drivers, one-eyed Charlie wore an eye patch. And after Parker's death, a coroner discovered an even more singular attribute. Parker's had been born as a woman, even though he lived as a man. Six years ago, California became the first state to mandate that students be taught about the contributions of the trials faced by gay people in social studies classes. It remains the only state to have such a law on the books. Now, after many delays and much wrangling over the details, including a failed attempt to nix the law by conservative groups, state officials reached a milestone this November when they voted to approve the first revised K-8 textbooks to include the mandated material. Yep. Indoctrination. Time did this. They just love this shit. It, it's, they bring up a bunch of nondescript people that don't really matter to anything. And yeah, there we go. Mm-hmm. Then the indoctrination goes on TV. I love the Science Channel Discovery. And I'm watching this. Uh, Mysteries of the Abandoned. And I saw this dude chick. I knew I knew the dude chick. And then I found this article. Remember, this is not my writing. So those that want to try to get me... Docs taken off SoundCloud. I didn't write this shit. Famous Sandhurst military historian goes tranny. Yeah. A top male lecturer at Sandhurst who taught Prince William and Harry has won his own war. To be a woman, officer cadets returned to the elite military academy for a new term yesterday to find pipe-smoking Dr. Aray Nussbacher is now Lynette. Dr. Nussbacher, 40, already tagged Mrs. Gunfire, is believed to have had the sex chain off in the past few weeks. 
On top of giving her a title of ma'am, cadets have been ordered to treat her with full respect. Sanders Commandant Major General Peter and Peterson has warned that any jokes or snide remarks by pupils or staff will be severely punished. The U.S.-born professor married with a young daughter is still living with his wife Melanie and family in nearby Guilford, Surrey. A friend of Lynette said she's a very brave girl even though she has a dick. A stiff upper military environment such as Sanders is about the hardest place to come out. So why am I covering this? Well, this dude was on all these shows and he was on Military Channel and I always saw him. And then all of a sudden, I see the way that he talks is very, I am so smart and I'm going to over-articulate everything so I can make a fucking useless point that has nothing to do with anything. And it's a chick. And Science Channel inserts him in everything and he doesn't have shit to know about the military, but they shove him in there. Yeah. Indoctrination. So what does the indoctrination do? Brings us to Gallup. Americans still greatly overestimate U.S. gay population, and there are some possible reasons why. A new Gallup study released Thursday found that Americans continue to overestimate the percentage of people that identify as gay or lesbian, and they do so at the rate of about five times the actual percentage. U.S. adults estimate that nearly one in four Americans, 23.6%, are LGBT. Gallup has previously found that Americans have greatly overestimated the U.S. gay population, recording similar average estimates of 24.6 in 2011 and 23.2 in 2015. That estimate is more than five times Gallup's more encompassing 2017 estimate that 4.5% of Americans are LGBT, based on respondents' self-identification as being lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. Gallup explains when the estimates are broken down by demographics, even the most conservative estimates still remain about four times higher than the 4.5 estimate actual number. Just your best guess, what percent of American today would you say are gay? The survey conducted in 2011, 15, and 19 asked. The mean results has been 24.6, 23.2, 23.6. In May 2019 study, only 8% estimated in the most accurate range, less than 5%. About 1 in 10, 9% between 5 and 10, while 14 guessed between 10 and 15. Gallup found that women estimate a higher percentage of those who identify as gay or lesbian than men, 29.7, compared to 17.4. A familiar imbalance exists between young and old. Millennials estimate 28.5% are gay, while old people say 17.5. Democrats, 26.2. Conservatives, 18 Noting that a 2002 study found similar results, Gallup offered some theories on why this overestimation appears to be so entrenched, including overrepresentation in entertainment as promoted by GLAD. Overestimation of the nation's gay population may in part be due to the group's outsized visibility. An annual report by GLAD on LGBT advocacy group found that representation of LGBT people as television series regulars on broadcast primetime scripted program reached an all-time high of 8.8, 2018-19, and we covered that, which is nearly twice the actual population. Gallup comp- complicates the theory, however, by noting that Americans have frequently overestimated the percentage of minority groups. That trend, along with the growing number of LGBT-identifying millennials, as Gallup has found in other studies, may be influencing the skewed perception of how many people in the country actually identify as gay or lesbian. The increased percentage 
of millennials who identify as gay also explain why the demographic assumes a higher percentage than older Americans. But, for those who went back in the catalog, we already covered this. Glad has pushed them so much that you have gay people everywhere. Every show has to have a gay person. Then it became everybody had to have a black gay person. Then we had to have a transgender person. Then we had to have two guys fucking each other in an ambulance on Grey's Anatomy because we didn't have gay enough people fucking. We just had lesbians fucking. But it's 4.5%. 0.7% is tran. That brings you to 3.8% gay or lesbian. 0.7% tran. Yet, all we have is indoctrination. I mean, I've said on the show before, maybe it's because of global climate warming change, they want to make people not produce or reproduce. I mean, that's it. Because everybody will be gay. They won't be able to make kids or they'll chop their shit off. I don't know. Fucking shit's out of control. Mayor Jenny Durkirk takes us to our next craziness. Bold move by San Francisco. It's time to have a discussion in Seattle. They want a band... They want to ban e-cigarettes also. But a company article, piles of poop litter on trails, trample wildflowers. In the social media era, Washington public lands have become trash. In 2018, park rangers had to bury more than 400 piles of human shit. Doesn't that sound just like San Francisco? Yeah. Mayor Eric Garcetti, at all levels of government, is our responsibility to protect the health of our people and safeguard our environment. We won't allow Trump administration to stall the progress we made here in L.A. to take toxic fumes out of the air. Joel Grover, you have to see it to believe it. Twelve tons of uncollected garbage swarming with rants are stinking up L.A.'s famed fashion district. But being that our media is so fucking stupid, CBS... Lauds this, how awesome it is we have all these stupid fucking laws that don't fix the real problems in sanctuary cities. Across the country today, a flurry of new laws, some catching nationwide attention. We will begin in Vermont, where they're hoping to curb vaping. They slapped a 92% tax on e-cigarettes. New York City has banned agencies from buying single-use plastics. In Washington, D.C., there's a ban on plastic straws. And in California, background checks are now required for the purchase of ammunition. Yep, that shit's just great, isn't it? To our crazy stuff, crazy crimes, crazy things, Taco Bell pop-up hotel reservations sell out in two minutes. Who the fuck would stay at a Taco Bell? Are you suck? You're just going to shit all over yourself. What's wrong with you? This teenage Chick-fil-A employee does something unheard of to save a choking child. This is a kid, uh, he was 17 years old, jumped through the drive-thru and saved the kid. The mom was, like, on her phone, wasn't paying attention to her six-year-old almost dying. NASA spacecraft images offer sharper views of Apollo landing site. You know, I've been watching this uh, show that says that, hey, you know, uh, all these people with their foil hats say we made up the moon landing. And I didn't even know about this orbiter. So if you never looked up the lunar orbiter, you can get it on NASA's website and see detailed images of the entire moon. And you can see the flag. The lower stage of the freaking landing craft, the tracks, the whole nine yards, man. It's pretty fucking badass. Which brings us to our lighter fare. This soundbite really touched me. 
It's a young man who bought his dad a truck, Charles Chapman. This son brought his dad a truck after his dad's truck broke down. He's not an NBA or NFL doctor or a lawyer, just a regular guy working hard to get his dad a truck. This shows his appreciation. The gift just says, thanks, Dad. I love you. And I was touched by this. No, Zach of Tennessee, I don't want a truck. I just thought it was really cute. Pretty nice. To our This Is America, as stated in the beginning, we're going to lay all of this Antifa at the feet of the people that deserve it. Normalization of anything fringe is supposed to be bad in our society. We talk all the time about how normalizing stuff on Fox News makes it horrible. Normalizing Ben Shapiro on YouTube makes it a gateway drug to fucking alt-rightism. We talk about that on the left all the time. Well, back when Antifa first broke out, started their shit, and went fucking boo-coo crazy up in this bitch, Chuck Todd brought the author of the Antifa Anti-Fascist Handbook on, and Chris Cuomo went to the air and said, not all punches are morally the same, validating that it's okay to beat up with people, just beat up people who you perceive to be evil. Random people walking by on the street have been beaten up. Journalists have been beaten up. Black guys have been beaten up. Gay people have been beaten up. 
We just read a story about a gay guy being chased by Antifa. He's gay in a dress. He's got two check marks. But they were going after him also. This is not these warriors on a crusade to rid America of evil people. These are evil people who want the downfall of America. And Chris Cuomo and Chuck Todd, that's on you. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. It's time for the last soundbite. Like the media say when they are pushing living liberal agenda stories. And this is America in 2019. I got the strap. Welcome back to primetime. Here's a closing argument. Two wrongs and what is right. It's been one year since Heather Heyer was killed for standing up to hate, and our thoughts still go to her family. We know what happened with racial tensions nationwide after that, and this weekend was billed as round two, Unite the Right, the sequel. Organizers planned a rally in Washington, D.C. this time, but the turnout of white supremacists was thankfully pathetic, which is why I didn't have to go there and cover it. Only a couple of dozen showed up. Proof they lost membership after being exposed against year as a bunch of hateful losers? No. They're still in force online, but they didn't have the guts to show up, and that's good. Counter-protesters did. There were good numbers of them. The vast majority were peaceful. But peppered in the crowd were members of Antifa, or anti-fascists. They covered their faces, confronted police, and berated journalists. And that was wrong. Now, you've been hearing it. There's a lot of whataboutism and spin going on, and it's kind of sickening to me. So let's all agree on some common understandings. A protester uses their voice. Song, slang, slurs, there's a huge range, but it is talk. When you use your hands in a violent way, you are a rioter. And unless you're justified in defending yourself and you hit someone, you're a thug, you're a criminal. You attack cops. You slap the media, you're in the wrong, period. But I argue to you tonight, all punches are not equal morally. In the eyes of the law, yes. But in the eyes of good and evil, here's the argument. If you're a punk who comes to start trouble in a mask and hurt people, you're not about any virtuous cause. You're just somebody who's going to be held to the standard of doing something wrong. But when someone comes to call out bigots and it gets hot, even physical, Are they equally wrong as the bigot they are fighting? I argue no. Fighting against hate matters. Now, how you fight matters, too. There's no question about that. But drawing a moral equivalency between those espousing hate and those fighting it because they both resort to violence emboldens hate, legitimizes hateful belief, and elevates what should be stamped out. That's what Trump did wrong last year when he said this. He said there was hatred, there was violence in most sense. Well, I do think there's blame. I think there's blame on both sides. You look at you look at both sides. I think there's blame on both sides, and I have no doubt about it. And you had some very bad people in that group, but you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. No. And he proved he still believes that when he wrote this before this year's anniversary. 
The riots in Charlottesville a year ago resulted in senseless death and division. We must come together as a nation. I condemn all types of racism and acts of violence. Peace to all Americans. He needed to call out the bigots and the white supremacists, and he didn't. Why? And why does he therefore have unprecedented support from these fringe elements of white power? Two wrongs and what is right. The bigots are wrong to hit. Antifa or whomever, anarchist or malcontent or misguided, they are also wrong to hit. But fighting hate is right. And in a clash between hate and those who oppose it, those who oppose it are on the side of right. Think about it. Civil rights activists, were they the same morally as the bigots, as the racists with whom they exchanged blows? Are people who go to war against an evil regime on the same moral ground as those they seek to stop from oppressing the weak? When you punch me in the nose for being Italian and you say I'm somehow less than, am I in the same moral place when I punch you back for saying that? It's not about it being right in the eyes of the law, but you also have to know what's right and wrong in a moral, in a good and evil sense. That's why people who show up to fight against bigots are not to be judged the same as the bigots, even if they do resort to the same kinds of petty violence. The law will take care of that. How you disagree matters. We should be our best. But I am arguing that was wrong to create a moral equivalency between bigots and those who oppose them, making them equal wrongs. Those hateful few who take solace and a encouragement from the president's efforts my message to you is simple be aware there are many more of us who see you as unequal as less than and you will be opposed at every turn because what you are about is wrong and fighting you is right thank you for watching cnn tonight with don lemon is going to pick up the show right now it's a tricky argument i know i'm going to get some heat I understand that. Mm -hmm. The law will take care of what you do to me and what I do to you. But to make it moral equivalence, when you're coming at me because I'm saying that you don't matter in this world as much as I do, those are not equivalent motivations that lead us into the confrontation. Well, and sometimes you can't fight people by, you know, praising them or being nice to them. You have to fight fire with fire sometimes. Listen, I'm not advocating. You should be your best. Violent. Those guys going after best. cops, going after the media. It's wrong. They did yeah. nothing productive. They did yeah. nothing to make anything better. Yeah, let me just say this, though. You asked why he doesn't call out, because the white nationalists are winning right now. This helps their cause. This helps their case. Um, for the president to, to be equivocating between, you know, whether it's Antifa or whatever, find people on both sides, that actually helps their, their case. And they, they have garnered the spotlight. Uh, this gives them energy and a profile that they didn't have before. And it's, I, true. it's sad that this president can't see. And that. that's why they're up out online more than I've seen in a long time. But I'll yeah. tell you this, there ain't enough of them. Yeah. There ain't enough of them. Well, if it cre so creates an equal opposite and people who want to fight hate and realize that they have to do something about it, that they can't just sit back and expect it to happen otherwise, not right now, yeah. that'll matter too, my friend. There is a great article that you should read by Adam Sir. I don't know if you read it, and it's called White Nationalists Are Winning. Adam's going to be on in our 11 o'clock hour. Yeah. He's going to talk to us about this great article. Get. We're going to have this conversation, similar conversation. Thank you, Chris. I'll be watching. All right, see ya. This is CNN Tonight. I'm Don Lemon. and Welcome back. I'm joined now by two gentlemen with very different views on how to respond to white supremacists when they take to the streets. Mark Bray is a Dartmouth professor who has studied the Antifa anti-fascist movement. Antifa is a far-left political movement that argues it's necessary to confront hate groups 
sometimes with force. Professor Bray is author of the new book, Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook. And Richard Cohen is the president of the Southern Poverty Law Center as an expert in hate groups. And he says direct confrontation simply leads to more of the kind of violence we saw in Charlottesville. Gentlemen, welcome to you both. I'm going to try to have this sort of debate So, uh, Mark Bray, I'll start with you. You seem to be a very small minority here who is defending the idea of violence, considering that somebody died in Charlottesville. Why do you defend confronting in a violent way? Well, first, I would contest the notion that I'm that small of a minority. I think that a lot of people recognize that when pushed, self-defense is a legitimate response to white supremacist and neo-Nazi violence. And, you know, we've tried ignoring neo-Nazis in the past. We've seen how that turned out in the 20s and 30s. And the lesson of history is you need to take it with the utmost seriousness before it's too late. We've seen the millions of deaths that have come from not taking it seriously enough. And we can see that really the way that white supremacy grows, the way that neo-Nazism grows is by becoming legitimate, becoming established, becoming everyday, family-friendly, wear khakis instead of hoods. And the way to stop that is what people did in Boston, what people did in Charlottesville. Pull the emergency brake and say, you can't make this normal. Richard, why why do you believe this is a mistake? I think it's a spectacularly bad idea to give one group of people the right to silence another group of people. Uh, It's contrary to our values embodied in the First Amendment. Uh, it's likely to drive the people who are trying to censor underground where they may resort to illegal means to express themselves like bombs. And lastly, it's likely to lead to a terrible spiral. We saw that in Berkeley. The Antifa came and shut down uh, a speech. The next time, uh, the white nationals brought their own private army. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, where does something like that stop? Yesterday in Boston, you know, when we saw thousands and thousands of people peacefully protest. That seemed like a much stronger answer to white supremacy than, than clubs and guns. Andy Young made the point, Mark, earlier in the show, mm-hmm. that essentially there, there were those in the civil rights movement that wanted to confront violently, and he made the not-so-subtle reminder, they're not here anymore. Well, the, the, there's a big difference between confronting fascism and confronting other forms uh, of, of violence. So we can see that during the 30s and 40s, there was no public opinion to be leveraged by nonviolent resistance. If you get fascists to be powerful enough in government, they're simply not going to listen to the kind of public opinion that nonviolence can generate. That's the argument for resistance to Nazis. And the other point that I'll make is that a lot of people don't have the choice whether they can defend themselves or not. We've seen that even before this sort of, as you called it, spiral of violence started, there were attacks on mosques, there were attacks on synagogues. A lot of people are under attack, and sometimes they need to be able to defend themselves. It's, not, you know, it's a privileged position to be able to say that you never have to defend yourself from these kinds of monsters. You know, it's not an issue of defending yourself. Uh, it's an issue of trying to silence other people. No one is saying that, you know, if you're slugged in the face that you have to sit there and take it. it the question here is when white nationalists want to walk down the street, should people stop them? And that's a very different issue. It's a very peculiar vo- notion of self-defense to say you can censor people. Some of the criticism of the Antifa movement, Mark, is that you're actually against speech. That you want to shut down this speech and that borders on censorship. Well, let's be clear that Antifa are not calling on the government to censor anyone. In fact, that they, they resist the notion of turning to the government or turning to the police, who we've seen have been uh, infiltrated by white supremacists, who have been sympathetic to the court, sort of return to law and order notion of fascism. And so the idea is 
the real enemies of free speech are fascists. We've seen that historically. We've seen that they're the ones that, if they have their way, will shut down speech. And it also differs in the sense that anti-fascists see this as a political struggle. They don't see fascism as a difference of opinion or as, as kind of a different perspective to consider. Instead, they see fascists as the enemy, and I think that we need to come around to that notion considering that there is no doubt what they've done historically. Richard, I know the concern is that it makes martyrs out of the white supremacists. Yes. And it makes it, I mean, look, look, it drove the, one could argue that the Antifa movement helped the president make his arguments of, quote, both sides. Sure, sure, sure. Do you buy that? Well, look, to some degree, there was a lot of ugliness that the Antifa brought there. And, you know, I, I think he, they play into the hands of the white nationalists who say, look, we're the ones who are embattled. The answer to bad speech is more speech. We saw it in Boston yesterday. Well, we've seen that fail historically. I mean, fascism cannot be defeated through speech. And we can also see that, you know, Charlottesville did give attention to white supremacy, but it's not as if your average American can name any of the groups that were out there. Instead, we can see that they were unable to do the things that we see make movements grow, embed themselves in communities, establish networks, express their message. Instead, we see, and I can tell you from my book, from my research, there's a lot of empirical examples historically of anti-fascism working and stopping these groups from growing. All right, Mark Bray, Richard Cohen, I'm going to leave it there. I imagine, though, the debate uh, doesn't stop here. Thank you both for coming up. Their words. They normalized it. Now it's happening in our street. It's no different than them normalizing. It's okay to go yell and scream at somebody and spit on them doing op-eds. It's okay. They're horrible because they don't agree with you. They don't share your version of politics. And that's why it's our worst sound by the day. I have an accompanying article. I usually do the July 4th, the holiday, and I thought, you know why? We've done this a couple years in a row, and we all know why we do July 4th, but I had to do this because it's pretty horrible. Did Kaepernick kill Nike's July 4th flag fund? Either somebody in Nike product development is in deep trouble or it's being bullied by its washed-up former QB mascot. It all depends on whether you believe the company's explanation for its July 4th flag flap. Somebody came up with the idea to create and sell a patriotic version of the Nike Air Max sneaker for Independence Day. The heel of the shoe featured a U.S. flag with 13 white stars in a circle, a design created during the American Revolution and commonly referred to as the Betsy Ross flag, Wall Street Journal said. The shoe shipped and Nike hyped them on social media and then nothing. Nike apparently asked retailers to return them without explanation and the shoe disappeared online. Nike's official explanation, it chose not to release the Air Max 1 Quick Strike 4th of July as it featured the old version of the American flag. Do you believe that? I don't. So Nike developed, manufactured, marketed, and shipped the shoes, and somebody just now recognized the flag looks different than the one hanging outside every post office in America, given the state of public education in the U.S. It's plausible. Or is there another explanation? The journal reported that people familiar with the matter said that Nike shill, an anti-American radical Colin Kaepernick, got wind of the design and told the company that he and the others considered the flag an offensive symbol of a slave society. The reasoning, there would go something like the original 13 colonies still had slaves. So the flag is bad, I guess. Kaepernick refused comment on the matter. He, of course, was an NFL quarterback who's a piece of shit and is MLB or the uh, freaking BLM figure, da-da-da. Nike thought a race-baiting has-been would make a great pitch man and made him the poster boy for just do it. 
For Wall Street journalists to be believed, Kaepernick now has the clout to say, just don't do it. Far-fetched? Maybe. But with his penchant for sporting cops as pig socks, his love of communist dictators, and his funding of groups named for convicted cop killers, there are a few bigger jerks than Kaepernick, and there are a few companies more craven than Nike. Doesn't surprise me at all. <clears throat> Doesn't. I have not bought a Nike in a long time because they suck, to be quite honest. And I've gone to other brands. I wear Merrill. They're really comfortable. But their PC-ness has just ruined that company. Just ruined it. It's just sad to watch. But it brings up the key point. It's no longer cool to love your country as of 9 November 2016. You have to hate your country. You have to hate everything about the country. From cops, to soldiers, to flags. It's what we do. And then in 2020, if for somehow Biden gets the nod, because hopefully... If I'm looking at the other shit show fucking clowns in that car, he's at least the least of the shit show. All of a sudden, that'll all be okay again. You can love the flag. You can love America. Everything we do is good again. Because all this shit goes by the wayside when there's a Democratic president. You don't see any care about people on the border in cages. You don't care about foreign policy anymore. You don't care about anything. But I'm not them. Them. And most of you listening to this show are not them. So, I say to you, this Thursday, enjoy your 4th of July. Be proud of this country. We have blemishes. We have flaws. But we're still the best in the world. And if you don't believe that, it's because you never left. You went to Canada or some shit. Go to parts of Mexico, you'll find what I'm saying. Anybody who put on the fucking kit bag and went to the Middle East, you know what I'm talking about. From how we treat women, to how we treat gays, to how we treat everybody, it's by far the best in the world. And the fact that every morning, rich or poor, unless you're homeless, you can put your ass on a toilet to take a dump That's something you don't get everywhere else in the world, folks. So that seems like a simple little analogy, but it's the truth. We got it pretty damn good just because we were pulled out of a crotch that was in America. I know, vulgar. But that's all it is about being American nowadays. You don't have to serve. You don't have to fucking do anything. You don't have to sacrifice shit. You just got to be born here. That's pretty good, too, if you look at the conscription that most countries require of their youth in some form of service. The left will spend all their time from now until the election telling us all how fucking horrible America is, how horrible everybody but the coast is, just so they can get elected. And they will pour as many illegals in to jump up the census and get more representation so they can hate on America. But you and I know this is a great place. So cook up your dogs and burgers, ribs. I don't know. Boston butt sounds pretty yummy. Grab you some watermelon. Blow some shit up. And enjoy our nation's birthday. I know I will be. I'm having wings. It's a first. Wife wanted wings this year, so we're going to make hot wings. Buffalo style. 
And hopefully I'll get my son over here and we'll have some fireworks. He can go blow some up. I don't do it anymore. I gave it to him. So this wraps up another episode of Flyover Politic Podcast. Please feel free to share it with your family and friends and send comments or suggestions for segments to F-O-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. Foppodcast gmail.com. Get this show on SoundCloud, Podcast Addict, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, iTunes, Blueberry, and Stitcher. And a new one I just found this week, Pocket Cast. Somehow, I had a shitload of listens, 170, from Pocket Cast. Something I've never heard anymore. And they even said when my next show was, which was tomorrow. That was pretty cool. Remember, check out our Facebook page at FOP Podcast and our Twitter page at FOP Tony Reed. We're going to go for a Saturday podcast. Saturday, Saturday, Saturday. 6th of June, year of our Lord, 2019. Until then, once again, enjoy your 4th. Have a great time. Stay cool. It's hot as hell down here. Make sure you disconnect from all your devices. Don't give the yeah yeahs to your family. And tune back in Saturday for another episode. As always, thanks for listening and take care. Thank you for listening to Flyover Politic Podcast. Please check out our Facebook page at FOP Podcast and Twitter account at FOP Tony Reed. Remember, it's a short ride. Make every day count.